and we're live with Be Green with Amy. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Be Green with Amy. I'm Amy. After adopting a whole food plant-based lifestyle, my hubby Rick and I lost over 130 pounds. Now I coach others on their plant-based journey. Just has voice. Let's welcome our guest. Dr. Peter Rogers is a Stanford and Harvard-educated MD who for over 30 years has helped people optimize performance for school, sports, and health. He is an imaging-guided surgeon and neuroradiologist. He's written nutrition, medical, and study skill books. Please click like to help Be Green with Amy. Welcome, Dr. Peter Rogers. Greetings, Green Warriors, and welcome back, Dr. Rogers. Hi. Well, Green Warriors, did you know that hypertension is a condition that affects, oh, about one in three adults globally? And it really just remains a subject of mystery to many medical professionals. So today, Dr. Rogers is going to teach us not only its origins, but also he's going to delve into practical insights about prevention and reversal. And these things are not commonly known by most medical doctors. And this is going to be such a great thing. You guys are going to learn a lot. We're going to be playing our true or false question game. And also Dr. Rogers is going to be sharing a presentation where he's going to dive deep into microbiology and all kinds of things that you can learn a lot from. And hopefully some people out there will be able to share this with people that they know and love, that they care about, and they can benefit from it. So let's begin with our true or false game. It's time for true or false on Be Green with Amy Live. Answer true or false to Amy's questions in the comments below, and Amy will ask our guest for the expert answer. Hey, Green Warriors, true or false, hypertension is the leading risk factor for myocardial infarction, which is also known as a heart attack. True or false, type in your guess. And Dr. Rogers, go ahead and give us the answer. Yeah, hypertension is like the most important risk factor for atherosclerosis. Atherosclerosis is the most important cause for heart attack, myocardial infarction. And these things are all connected, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, and atherosclerosis. And I'm also going to tell you the big secret of understanding atherosclerosis. And it's relevant because this stuff is all connected. Atherosclerosis is a blood clot. And you need to get that. And that is not taught to doctors. That is not taught to doctors. And I did a fellowship in vascular interventional radiology, imaging-guided surgeon with the emphasis in vascular disease at Harvard. And we didn't learn it at that time. I learned this later on when I started reading the pathology literature and pathology. I won't go on too much here, but I, I just want to say something because a lot of people are confused about this. Everybody thinks the cardiologists know the most about atherosclerosis. They don't. Or they think, well, vascular surgeons know a lot about atherosclerosis. No, they don't. Okay. What about cardiothoracic surgeons or interventional radiologists, you know, vascular interventionalists? No, no, no. And I'll tell you why. Because they're all a bunch of plumbers. And I was a plumber myself. I thought I knew atherosclerosis. But I didn't because the way they think is there's a narrowing in the artery, a stenosis. Can we do a surgical bypass? Could we get a, a catheter in there? Could we angioplasty it, stent it? Could we maybe inject some clot dissolver? Maybe get a thrombectomy catheter in there? Maybe an atherectomy catheter? That's not what atherosclerosis is all about. Where you really learn about atherosclerosis is reading the literature of the pathologist. Pathologist looks at it under a microscope. 
And he's like, hey, it's a blood clot. Okay. And that's what you need to know because once you get that, everything else will make sense. But until you get that, it'll, you'll be like, this is over here. This is over here. I can't put it all together. Once you understand it's a blood clot, it'll be subsequently easier to put it all together, when, whatever you read. Yeah, it, 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 they make it so complicated, and yet it is it is so simple. And you're going to explain that later in detail with your presentation, and I'm really looking forward to that. Okay, Green Warriors, here's our next question. Older red blood cells are more stiff. Okay, type in your guess, Dr. Rogers. Yes, I guess you could say uh, red blood cells are the opposite of men. Okay, now that's a bit of a joke, but what, what <laughs> I'm getting at That's here, a big setup. Like, why are red blood cells? Yeah, I like that one. But I'm pumped. <laughs> so uh, basically what happens is the red blood cell, as it gets older, typically they die at about 120 days. As they get older, they get more glycated, and that'll stiffen them. You've heard of like hemoglobin A1C, more stiffening of the red blood cell. In addition, what happens is there's a inner and outer membrane. Let's say these are the inner and outer leaflets. And from, let's say this is the inner leaflet, you'll have phosphatidylserine. It'll flip into the outer leaflet. It's a phospholipid. And the point I'm saying is the more uh, phosphatidylserine, phospholipid you have in the outer leaflet of the plasma membrane of the red blood cell, the stiffer it gets. So it'll become less deformable. And that's relevant for two reasons. The first is that typically a red blood cell is about seven microns and a capillary is only about five microns. So it has to uh, fold back on itself to get through that capillary. Um, what happens is the capillaries in the spleen are even smaller, about three microns. So that, that red blood cells like doing the limbo to get through those splenic capillaries. In addition, an excessive amount of phosphatidylserine in the outer plasma, outer leaflet of the plasma membrane, I thought to be almost a little bit of a eat me sign to the macrophages in the spleen. So the bottom line is yes, the older RBCs get the more stiff they get. And that's highly relevant because there's other things that we can do that tend to also um, accelerate this stiffening of the RBCs. Very good. Okay, Green Warriors. True or false, the thicker the blood, the higher the blood pressure, the more prone a person is to clotting. And we talked about blood clots, so let's see. Go ahead, Green Warriors. Type that in, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, like imagine you had two cups. One cup was water, one cup is blood. They are not the same. Water is what's called a Newtonian fluid. It is the same whether it is moving or stationary. Blood is not. Blood is what is called fixotropic. If it's stationary, it starts to clot, starts to aggregate. I think that's also why you go on a long drive, you know, two hours or more. When you first get out of the car, everything aches a little bit. It's kind of slow. It's sluggish. Those RBCs need to free up and move around, separate from each other so they can oxygenate your muscles more uh, readily. Um, so, yeah, and the, the thicker the blood is, now you're trending towards increased risk of clotting. And there's a lot of things that thicken the blood. Most common one is LDL cholesterol. That's why LDL cholesterol is a risk factor for atherosclerosis, a major risk factor. And so that's why you want your cholesterol lower, because the higher it gets, the more your RBCs are sticking together, predisposed to clot, predisposed to myocardial infarction. Well, very good. Well, here's something that people may not, at least the average person may not be aware of and they need to be educated on. True or false, the systolic pressure represents the heart's contraction, while the diastolic pressure represents cardiac relaxation. Okay, Green Warriors, type it in while Dr. Rogers talks to us about the mechanics. Uh, yes, yeah, so the heart contraction is during systole, 
and that will push the blood into the ascending aorta. Once the blood goes into the ascending aorta, a little secret is, we'll maybe talk about this later, but the ascending aorta is very important. And then the heart relaxes. When the heart relaxes, actually that's when the blood comes into the coronary arteries predominantly, and then it goes into the intramyocardial uh, branches, meaning the it feeds the muscles of the heart. And that's relevant because when you get hypertension, you're contracting the left ventricle more forcefully. And so it's going to be tight for a longer amount of time such that it's harder to perfuse the left ventricle, the, the muscles called the myocardium. So I, I don't know if you see what I'm getting at. It's a bit of a double screw job. Okay. You're pumping harder. So you need more oxygen, but because you're pumping harder, you're contracted longer and more forcefully such that you're getting less oxygen and you got to be careful. You can start tipping into a vicious cycle. And that's partly why hypertension, you know, over time predisposes patients to congestive heart failure. Well, that is very good to know because oftentimes people who have the condition of high blood pressure may not address it and may not really think about it, how important it is to address it because it's basically silent until things get very serious. Okay, the next one. The ascending thoracic aorta is often referred to as the second heart due to elastic fibers and Winkessel effect. Hmm. True or false, Green Warriors? Go ahead, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, like remember when you were a kid and more people had fireplaces and you push on that thing, kind of looks like an accordion. That's called a Winkessel, like to blow air onto the, the, the embers, if you will, to kindle them, to get the fire going. And so the relevance is when your heart pumps, it pushes our blood into the ascending thoracic aorta. Ascending thoracic aorta then stretches outward and it has elastic fibers that enable it to do this. And so it's, it's, in a sense, storing kinetic energy. Then, then during diastole, when the heart is relaxing, the ascending thoracic aorta contracts inward from those elastic fibers. It's called elastic re recoil. And that propels blood up towards your brain and the rest of your body. And the relevance is that also pushes blood back down into the coronary arteries of the heart. So it provides good coronary artery perfusion. You want that. It provides good diastolic flow. You want that. It also keeps the pulse pressure narrow. So this will be the systolic pressure, the upper number of your blood pressure. And this will be diastolic pressure, the lower number of your blood pressure. Normally, you have a relatively narrow pulse pressure. Let's say you're 110 over 70. So you take 110, you subtract 70 from it. That's about 40. So that would be a pulse pressure of 40. What I'm getting at is after you have reached the age of maturity, let's say 22 years of age, you're no longer growing taller. What happens is you stop being able to produce those elastic fibers. So chronic hypertension gradually keeps destroying those fibers. And then it becomes irreversible, that loss of elastic fibers in your ascending thoracic aorta. You know, it is often said medically that they've lost the Winkessel effect. The relevance is once you've lost those elastic fibers in your ascending thoracic aorta, it becomes much more difficult to maintain diastolic flow. That's why when you look at patients over 50, you're going to see lots of systolic hypertension. You don't see so much diastolic hypertension anymore. But you have to generate a significantly higher systolic pressure because the goal of blood pressure, why do you have a blood pressure? So you can get blood to the top of your brain. Okay, that's the highest spot going against gravity. Um, and so the relevance is that in order to maintain blood supply to the brain, that systolic pressure is going to have to keep going up when you don't have any elastic fibers in your ascending thoracic aorta. And again, this is what I meant, like a double screw job, a triple screw job. You're now having to pump higher up and... Now you're going to have a harder time filling up those coronaries, which fill primarily during diastole. You see what I'm saying? And so you've got a heart that's pumping harder, has thicker musculature, and it's uh, 
more intensely contracted, so it's getting a harder time for that to get adequate blood flow, while it's simultaneously keep having, keep having to pump harder. It's a little bit like the Red Queen hypothesis. What I mean by that is from Alice in Wonderland, you know, she's running with the Red Queen, and she says, and the trees don't seem to be moving at all. And she's like, we're running and running, but we're not getting anywhere. And she says, well, here you have to run and stay in the same place. And so what I'm joking is, you, you get what I'm saying. You're, you start to chase your tail. You, that's why you want to get this fixed. And, and like you mentioned, lots of people that are hypertensive, it's no big deal. I just take a pill or two for hypertension. It's no big deal because because everyone they know is hypertensive. You know, more than half of Americans are hypertensive by the time they reach 50. So they think it's no big deal, but it's bad. It's a problem. Um, and so what I'm also saying is, when you have the wider your pulse pressure, the difference between your systolic and your diastolic, let's say you're 160 over 100. Now, you know, yeah, that's more than 40. You're, that's a 60 pulse pressure. That starts to damage the small arteries in your brain, your arterioles and your capillaries. And they almost to protect themselves, they'll lay down fibrotic tissue. You'll also get vascular smooth muscle hypertrophy and hyperplasia, thickening of your small vessel walls, which are going to decrease gas exchange. So you're going to get decreased oxygen going to your brain per blood, per blood cell that flows through your capillaries. You don't want that. Yeah. And that's something that people really need to be aware of because they say it's a silent killer. And and oftentimes, I mean, we have a lot of things going on in our bodies that we don't necessarily feel until maybe it's a little too late in the game. So let's try and get ahead of this if we can. Green Warriors, true or false, lack in infarctions, which are a type of stroke. <clears throat> bless you, are often associated with high blood pressure and atherosclerosis. Type in your guess for that, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, lacunar means whole, like a lacuna is a whole. Okay, so it, the internal carotid artery comes up into your brain, and then it goes outward as the middle cerebral artery, and it gives off these little tiny branches going upward. Those are called lenticulostrides. Real high blood pressure has a tendency to shear off one of those vessels and occlude it, sort of like hyalinization, and it'll cause little infarcts in your basal ganglia. They're typically called lacunar infarcts. They're often hemorrhagic. I see them every day. I mean, not a day goes by. I don't see a couple of lacunar infarcts. Um, and so with hypertension, you're kind of screwed. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And what I mean by that is your blood pressure needs to stay in a normal, healthy range. And if it gets too high, you're at risk to have intracranial bleeds and strokes. It's going to constantly be damaging the vessels in your brain with those high pulse pressures. But if it's too low, you're screwed too because you don't have enough uh, oxygen and glucose delivery to your brain. And that's what I, we're going to talk about here today is that you want to get your act together and avoid the things that make you hypertensive because otherwise it just gets worse over time. Yes. True or false, Green Warriors, sleep deprivation can lead to hypertension by increasing stress hormones such as cortisol. And I'm going to let Dr. Rogers say this one, but I think it's catecholamines. don't know if I said that right. Yeah, I, I usually pronounce it catecholamines. Catecholamines. Okay. Yeah, so that's basically your stress response, fight or flight. And you get the same hormones elevated with sleep deprivation as you do from uh, psychological stress and as you do from uh, caffeine. So that's why I recommend avoiding caffeine. And you want to try to get your sleep every night. Usually the key thing, there's a lot to it, but going to bed early a lot of times is a key thing. There's a tendency to wake up at the same time every morning. Okay. Next question, true or false, saturated fat consumption can contribute to hypertension by causing red blood cells to click, stick together. Okay, Green Warriors, type in your answer. Dr. Rogers. 
Yeah, saturated fat's a problem. Uh, it's a problem for several reasons. It elevates your LDL cholesterol, which makes your red blood cells stick together. LDL is a bridging molecule. It sticks red blood cells together. So um, I got to imagine these two. Well, actually, I'll do it this way. Imagine these two. They're red. I know one of them's orange, but imagine that they're both red cells. All right, and then LDL cholesterol sticks them together. Normally, the two red blood cells would repel each other because they both have a zeta potential, meaning a negative charge on their outer surface. So they repel each other. Okay, but you stick an LDL cholesterol in there, it's positively charged on its outer surface, and it'll stick the, the red blood cells together. And so that makes your blood thicker. So now instead of having red cells floating independently of one another, you've got like a submarine sandwich where all this stuff is stuck together. The French word for stack of coins is rouleau formation. So you get a rouleau formation in your blood. The chyle microns immediately after eating too from the fat, they also cause blood sludging, thickening of the blood. Again, this predisposes to clotting. Plus, there's a third thing that's not widely known, that the red blood cells and sap fat in particular, they cause activation of the neutrophils, an immune system cell, a white blood cell. And once these neutrophils are activated, they respond almost as if there was a mild infection. Uh, what they do is they start releasing what's called MPO, myeloperoxidase. And that's very positively charged. The medical word for that is cationic. And that will then bind with the endothelial glycocalyx, which is very negatively charged. It has a zeta potential as well. So what am I getting at? Normally floating above your endothelial cells, the lining cells of your artery are these endothelial glycocalyx proteoglycans with a negative charge on them, a zeta potential negatively charged. And what happens is once you activate your neutrophils, they start dropping this myeloperoxidase on there that knocks down the proteoglycans and then sticking up, sticking up from the, uh, from the endothelial glycocalyx. Glycocalyx means the lining of the endothelial cells of your arteries. Sticking up are these adhesion proteins. And um, the white blood cells will bind to them and you start getting a cells, a blob of cells potentially clotting on your arterial lining surfaces. It happens at certain locations in particular, bifurcations. But the point I'm saying is you're now tipping the, the scale towards more and more atherosclerosis. You got things in your blood that are anti-clotting, things that are in your blood that are pro-clotting. And you want, it, you want your blood to not clot. By the way, you know, everybody's, you know, is aware of the idea of bleeding. Oh, bleeding's bad. But I can tell you, almost no one dies from bleeding. Almost everybody dies from an artery clotting. A clotted artery in the heart, that's a heart attack. Clotted artery in the brain, that's a stroke. So you don't want your arteries to clot. Yes. True or false, Green Warriors, diabetes is often linked to hypertension as individuals with diabetes tend to have higher blood glucose levels. Dr. Rogers? Uh, yeah, diabetes and hypertension, they all go together and they sort of feed into each other. You know, hypertensive tend to become diabetic, diabetics tend to become hypertensive. And uh, I can tell you, if you said to me, you know, a uh, 65-year-old patient, I wouldn't even look in the chart. I would just know what that means. That means when doctors talk to each other, I got a 65-year-old patient. Until proven otherwise, that means the patient's overweight, that they have high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, and that they also are pre-diabetic or diabetic, usually diabetic, okay? That's what that means. I mean, it's just it's just assumed amongst doctors that they have all these things, unless you specify others. You would say, well, this is a very healthy 65-year-old with no hypertension or diabetes. Well, that would be, oh, that's unusual. Why are they sick? Okay, and then the relevance why I say this too is, I can look at a CAT scan, and as soon as I see the patient 65, I just assume they're diabetic and they're hypertensive. Then I'll look at their eyeballs, and there usually be one or two cataract surgeries. And then I know they're probably cognitively impaired or demented. I look at their teeth. They got bad teeth. 
I can pretty safely assume they're very far, most likely significantly cognitively impaired. Okay, because usually the eyes start getting messed up before the brain does. So once I see those cataract surgeries, and I know poor dentition goes with leaky gut, leaky gums, atherogenic, westernized uh, diet and lifestyle. And, you know, most of the demented brains I see, those are characteristic findings. Cataracts, poor dentition. And I, I see every day all this uh, old guy fell hit head, old guy on blood thinners fell hit head. Okay, and why, why do I say that? Because, you know, a lot of times people can fall for numerous reasons. They can have, you know, a surprising obstacle in their path. That's what usually happens when a young person falls. They put their hands out, they catch themselves. But when an old guy falls and hits his head, that usually means he's not fully with it cognitively. I have friends, neurologists who started their own fall clinic. Okay. And they said it was kind of a joke. It was really a dementia clinic. <laughs> All these, because our brain's more for walking than it is for thinking. And when the brain's not working well, people start falling a lot. That's usually characteristic of, you know, when they're going down the tubes, um, becoming progressively demented, falling more and more often, less able to take care of themselves. I can see why a lot of people, especially in their later years, think that all these things are just a consequence of aging. Because it seems like it's just so over and over again, just as you're seeing it, they probably are seeing it with their parents and grandparents and then later on, maybe themselves and their friends that they, these are just things that seem to be affecting a lot of people. And it, but it doesn't it isn't a consequence of aging as we're going to be learning more about soon. OK, let's go to our next question. And I just want to make sure. If, OK. True or false green warriors. Alcohol consumption can lead to hypertension by promoting sodium retention and disrupting sleep patterns. Okay. Yeah, so and alcohol. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, give me a That's all right. Go ahead. Yeah, and alcohol, to some extent, is almost perceived by the body like fat. You know, it's ethyl alcohol, two carbon units, and that's kind of like acetyl CoA, two carbon unit. And the liver makes it a lot of times into fat. So you end up with fatty liver. It's also direct neurotoxin to the brain. Um, and it can, it can begin all these negative pathways you don't want, production of toxic aldehydes. But what I would say is it pushes you also towards hyperlipidemia, and it also increases saturated fat effects. So it, it leads to fatty liver. It leads to hyperlipidemia. It leads to hypertension. And uh, that also is also associated with worsening arthritis. It's all bad. I've seen all these alcoholic brains or pickled. All that stuff in the past, about one or two drinks a day, been good for uh, cardio protection. Stupid. It's not true. That, that was a distortion of the study data. It's not. Mm. Well, people like to hear good news about their bad habits. And so I'm sure that didn't help anything. Okay, Green Warriors, true or false, fructose metabolism in the liver can result in increased uric acid levels contributing to hypertension. Type in your answers. Okay, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll answer that too. And I know you, you, you know, you had a little bit of a sad look on your face when I said that alcohol is bad. Even one. Yeah, I didn't have days. a sad look. I have. I know, I'm kind of playing, but I'll tell you what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is, like I said, I said I'm the bad boy of nutrition because I really don't care. You know, the average doctor they're trying to recruit patients to their clinic, and a lot of their patients are cognitively impaired. So doctors always start out kind of pleasant, a little dopey. Hello, Mrs. Jones. How are you today? And what I'm kind of joking about is I don't have a clinic. I just do this as a hobby. And to be quite arrogant, I actually think I could be the best doctor in the world. And I say that because I look all over the Internet and I see all this BS and lying and trying to sell things and playing all these games. And I said, you know what? And also, I read all this. I read tons of scientific and medical papers. 
And most of the time, they're written by a PhD who knows a narrow area. They can't put it together. I have a very unusual batter, uh, background. I'm sports certified in three fields, was first in my class, all this stuff. So I can read in all these different fields and see the connection. So what I'm saying is, that's why I'm doing this, okay? And it needs to be done. Somebody needs to do it. And so I'm the guy to do it. But I realize I'll never be popular because nobody likes a person like me who always says, alcohol is bad, soy is bad, high-fat diets are bad, caffeine is bad, you know, like like I'm Scrooge or something, taking away their Christmas. No, I'm just telling you the truth, giving you a chance to be healthy, you know. You can double-check everything I say. You'll see it's correct. Right. Yeah, I, I was sad because of all of this information that is spreading out there from other people that are telling people good news about their bad habits and that they're using that as a permission slip in order to engage in the bad habits. When I think deep down inside people know that the engaging in alcohol and, and things like that are not, are not healthy. If you want to get resveratrol, you can eat grapes. You don't have to have a glass of wine. Yeah, yeah. And I'll answer your question too about fructose. And but kind of what I'm getting at too is a philosophy. What I mean by that is what I see in most people, their attitudes kind of, well, hey, I'm not as fat as my cousin. You know, genetically, everybody in my family's fat, but at least I'm not as fat as my cousin. And what I'm saying is you don't want to think like that. You don't want to think like a herd animal. The middle of the pack is the safest place to be. I'll just do what's normal. No, that's what losers and stupid people do. And Americans don't age well. You always want to ask yourself, what's the best I could do? What's the best I could do? That person is doing great. Why can't I do as well as them? What am I not doing that I can maybe do? What I'm saying is if you think about what's the best I can do, you'll do as well as you possibly can. Most people don't age well. My internal medicine friends tell me, plus my own clinical experience doing procedures and stuff, the majority of patients over 60 are cognitively slow. And a lot of them are significantly cognitively impaired. They will say, my internal medicine friends, all of my patients over 60 are cognitively impaired. They're kind of very slow in their response. Hi, yes, thank you. You know, they're nice, but they're they're just, you know, they've lost that spark of mental vitality, okay? And so you don't want to end up like that. And I can assure you, there are tons of chemicals in processed food. There's other issues in the environment, like in tap water, that are lowering cognitive performance. And even though we say, you know, myocardial infarction is the most common cause of death, 26%. And cancer about 25%, and then all these other causes about 5% or so. What I'm saying is the incidence of basically checking out of effective life most commonly is due to cognitive impairment. And the most common cause of cognitive impairments is hypertension and diabetes stuff. Okay. So you don't want it because you know, you know, you want to, you can see in all these blue zones and populations where people live a long time they're still going fine, you know, at 100 years of age, even, you know, in Okinawa, they got people 105 years old doing push-ups, joking around, dancing and singing. And the other thing I saw too, with my mother, my mother died of cancer about 70 years of age. What I saw though, during, cause I used to think, you know, being old stinks, you know, what are you going to do? It's kind of a waste of time. Who cares about being old? Okay. But I saw for my mother, those years of her life from 60 to 70 till she died, they were joyous. She was so happy and she had so much fun. That what I'm saying is you want those years. They can be great years and you want them and you want them with an intact brain. Okay, what's the deal with fructose? I'll just answer the question. Is that when you eat a meal, let's say you eat a meal, your uh, glucose is absorbed, goes all over your body. It's the main fuel for your brain, but your fructose just goes right to the liver. Okay, right to the liver right here. All right. And right when it goes up to the liver, it gets processed almost entirely in the liver. And in they're both six carbon sugars, fructose and glucose. All right. But the six carbon phase of glycolysis is tightly regulated, especially by PFK, phosphofructokinase. And that means that the liver is not going to let 
glucose enterglycolysis. It's the initial metabolic pathway for breaking down glucose into energy. It's not going to let it enter unless it needs it to enter. It needs to make ATP for energy, for example. Whereas fructose, um, it cheats. It comes into the liver. It has its own initial processing. And then it goes into glycolysis at the three carbon phase, the second half of glycolysis. And the relevance is second half of glycolysis is not regulated. So it just zoom, goes all the way into glycolysis fast. So if you eat a fruit, it's just tiny bits of fructose coming up. The, the intestine has to peel off the fiber before that fructose gets into the liver. But it's not the same. When you drink a like some sweetened energy drink or some other whatever drinks with high fructose corn syrup, there's no fiber, rapid absorption, boom, big bolus hits your liver. And when it hits your liver, what it does is the liver's like, crap, all this stuff coming into glycolysis. I don't need this. I uh, just make it into fat. So it predisposes you to fatty liver. In addition, the first ATP that's used to phosphorylate fructose. You phosphorylate a sugar when it comes into a cell to trap it in there by adding a big charge so it can't exit back out the plasma membrane. And that ATP going to ADP, it gets broken down into uric acid. So you get a bump up in your uric acid. You also get it from eating meats. And then uric acid is a bridging molecule. So it's six red blood cells together. It has a slight prothrombotic effect. It also inhibits endothelial nitric oxide, which is double bad because you actually release a little bit of endothelial nitric oxide in your skeletal muscle postprandial, which means after eating, because that enables the the insulin and the glucose to get throughout the skeletal muscle. Because normally your muscle, when you're not using it, the arteries are relatively constricted because it doesn't need blood flow. All right. It's at rest. But you'll vasodilate your muscles after you eat so that you can get that glucose into the muscle. Most of your extra glucose postprandial should be stored as glycogen in the muscle. And so what I'm saying is the uric acid is a double screw job. It's not only thickening your blood, causing your RBCs to stick together. It's also inhibiting endothelial nitric oxide, thus contributing to insulin resistance by not allowing you to vasodilate those skeletal muscle arteries. So that then you keep a higher glucose in the blood because you can't get it into the muscle. Mm. These are things that we really need to think about when we're trying to stay on course with the whole food plant-based lifestyle. You can't, your body is never not watching is what they say. And it's true. And there's just so many complicated uh, mechanisms going on at uh, molecular levels that we don't see. But now we're learning about it. And so keep that in mind when you think that you want to do something that maybe you shouldn't consume. The next question is, true or false, humans are designed to consume large amounts of sodium and exceeding this amount is not detrimental to health. Green Warriors, type that in. Okay, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, so basically salt used to be a relatively rare, sparse commodity, okay? And it was something special to have some salt. You know, the old the old saying is salary, like the Roman word for salt, you know, this Roman soldiers worth their salt. You know, it was something you could use to pay a person. It was so valuable and scarce. And so what I'm trying to say is our ancestors worried about getting, you know, finding their sodium, so to speak. But for the modern world, salt's everywhere. It's on all the processed food because it tastes good. It's on all the meat. It's a preservative. All right. So modern people tend to eat way too much sodium. They tend to eat about 10 to 1 sodium relative to potassium. You don't want that. Our ancestors probably ate about 25 to 1 uh, potassium to sodium. Potassium is a vasodilator. It opens up your arteries. Sodium is a vasoconstrictor. It closes your arteries. Not good. You don't want that. So we end up vasoconstricted and that contributes to our hypertension. Okay, true or false, 
Adequate potassium intake is recommended to counteract the vas vasoconstrictor effects of sodium. Yeah, you could kind of look at them as like a seesaw. When your potassium's up, your sodium's down. When your sodium's up, your potassium's down. And you want your potassium high. P for potassium, P for plants. That's what you want. That's what opens up your artery. Everything works better with open arteries. Your brain, your eyes, your heart, everything. Okay, so uh, P for plants, P for potassium. That's where you get it. And most people get most of their, their sodium from processed food. And it's also put a lot on meat, you know, sometimes as a preservative also because it's, you know, flavoring. Yes. And people would be surprised to know the amount of sodium that is in a lot of processed foods. For example, a typical slice of bread has more salt, more sodium than one potato chip. And that's because it's mixed into the dough rather than put on top of with the surface where it hits your taste buds. And uh, soda pop, soda also has quite a bit of sodium. So there's just a lot. And they inject meat with sodium to uh, make it softer and also more palatable. So it's it's everywhere. And it's something that we really should avoid. You're right. I just like to add something about you mentioned about soda pop. They put salt in soda pop. You'd be like, well, why would they put salt in soda pop? Here's why. Because it's a trick. Okay. First of all, you know, the caffeine and whatnot, like a diuretic gets you to avoid more. All right. So it makes you a little dehydrated. Then the salt makes you thirsty. So what do you do? Buy some more soda pop. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a very, very tricky recipe that they came up with. Very, very tricky. Okay. Next question. True or false? Insulin resistance is associated with sodium retention in the kidneys contributing to hypertension. Green Warriors, type in your answer. Go ahead, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, it's true. And that's part of how diabetes cycles back on hypertension. They sort of feed on each other and make both worse. And you can potentially get into a little bit of a vicious cycle. They both just keep gradually getting worse. And that's actually what happens to a typical American. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. True or false? Psychological stress, along with sleep deprivation, can increase cortisol and Catechomines to elevating blood pressure. Okay. Catecholines, yep. I think you said, right? <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, they go together. And that's also why you're going to hear, you're, and one of the things people say is, oh, well, I heard coffee's good for you and it has antioxidants. And what I'm going to tell you is every profitable food, these food companies have billions of dollars. Okay. They buy the journals, they own the journal. And then the scientists are poor. If a scientist wants to do research, the food company says, look, you play ball with us, you do what we say, you make us look good, we'll give you grant money, okay? We'll help you get promoted at your university. You don't support our products, well, then hit the road. And if you actually publish a paper that strongly goes against commercial products, they'll try to get the guy fired. That's happened numerous times, okay? And so I, the reason I tell you that is all of these profitable foods are going to have all these miracle research studies saying, gee, you know, they used to say that, you know, high-fat dairy helps a person to lose weight. Yeah, right. Um, so what I'm trying to say is coffee gets tons of positive uh, publicity. And I even laugh. There's some sleep expert. I'm not going to say his name, but he says, yeah, some a little bit of coffee every day is OK. And I know why he does that, because he's afraid if he tells the truth that coffee is bad for you, he'll get shadow banned versus if he just sort of says, oh, a couple cups of coffee a day is OK. And I drink decaf. Oh, isn't that nice? So basically, I hate to say it, but when you lie to the proles, you get more publicity on the internet. The companies, the corporation will support you. More people will be willing to interview. 
you know, you tell the truth and it's like, oh, that's not good for our corporation. That's not good for our product. But yeah, catecholamines, caffeine increases the exact same hormones as stress, cortisol and catecholamines, adrenaline and noradrenaline, same thing as epinephrine and norepinephrine. These things raise your blood pressure, they raise your blood lipids, and they cause decreased ability to sleep, more insomnia. And even if you sleep the same number of hours, you sleep less deeply. They're not good for your health, and uh, and they also increase your risk of kidney stones, and saying that coffee is good for you and all that stuff is for chumps. Right, because caffeine has a, a shelf life where, where it goes maybe even half half of it is still in your system if you had it in the morning or the afternoon and that could that in itself could uh affect your sleep so i would think that that would be deleterious to your health and really and also increase stress okay let's see oh yeah well, one thing funny too is, is you hear all these people that go well you know stress is bad but coffee's good and i'm like it's the same thing that's just bs Yes, I think so. If anybody had ever experienced having too much caffeine where they felt a little, their heart racing or a little shaky, that just because if you had too much that made that happen doesn't mean that even a small amount might change things inside of your body. And that's really something that we're learning today, which is very important. Oh, yeah. Hey, I'll ask you one, one last thing. Sorry to interrupt, but no, I, think caffeine, I think caffeine makes you stupid as you get older. The reason I say that is... When you're 20 years old, you can get away with a lot of stuff. A 20-year-old can go to a party. They can drink till 2 o'clock in the morning. They can then show up at work you know, the next day at 7 a.m. and be okay. You know, you get over 50, you try doing that. I don't think so. You're not going to feel too good. And so what I'm trying to say is caffeine simultaneously, being like cortisol, it'll increase glutamate, which increases the metabolic uh, rate of your brain cells, your neurons. But it's also a vasoconstriction vasoconstrictor your cerebral cortex okay so you're increasing metabolic rate of your brain cells and lowering the oxygen and glucose delivery so you're you're widening that gap of neurovascular uncoupling which is predisposing to the risk of apoptosis if there's just once one thing on board like that um your brain can handle it okay but you start stacking these things up you're stressed out you're sleep deprived drinking a lot of caffeine okay and now you're vasoconstricted and then you have a high salt high fat meal you've got a pretty high risk to lose some brain cells Yes, and that's something that we definitely don't want. Okay, here's our next question. True or false, overtreated hypertension can result in a stroke. What do you think, Green Warriors? Okay, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, you got like a Goldilocks balance. You want adequate blood supply to your brain. Like the upper part of your brain, it's hard to get blood there. You're going against gravity. And what I'm saying is severe hypertension is damaging the arteries because of the high pressure like a water pick pulse hammer is hitting away at them and they sort of protect themselves with fibrosis and smooth muscle hypertrophy on the other hand there's a tendency think about it if you're a drug company if you set the threshold for treatment at 150 systolic you only get so much money set that threshold at 145 you got more patients to treat set that threshold at 140 you got more patients to treat set that threshold at 135 130 you got more patients to treat you see how just how you set the guidelines, the more lower the guidelines, the more money you make. So the drug companies always want to push lower the lower the lower the threshold to treat, lower the threshold to treat. OK. And so what I'm saying is the doctor also knows, let's say your internal medicine working in a clinic. OK, if you don't treat the hypertension, they have a high pressure stroke. You maybe will get in trouble. You didn't treat their high pressure. On the other hand, if you overtreat it, no one tends to complain about that or make a fuss. 
So there's a tendency to sometimes overtreat high blood pressure. And I know this because I'll have friends who go vegan and their pressure drops. And they're like, well, I still take my pill just in case. I'm like, hey, genius, you're dropping the pressure to your brain. You're going to stroke out, you dummy. Okay, because I got doctor friends. A lot of doctor friends ask me questions about how to manage their hypertension. And so I'm just laughing because if you overtreat it, then you don't got enough blood supply to your brain. Why do you think your pressure is up in the first place to get that blood to your brain? So the smart move is fix your diet and lifestyle so that you can take as few medications as possible because your body's own internal system of regulating blood pressure works better than a pill does. Don't get me wrong. There are sometimes people need pills, but you get my point. And also, once you've trashed your Winkessel effect, you're more likely to be stuck on pills the rest of your life. But tons of people have had dramatically high blood pressure in the 200s even and come down to reasonably normal pressures uh, by going low fat, low sodium plant based. Yes. And we should say at this point that uh, this lifestyle is so effective that it can dramatically lower your blood pressure. It can dramatically lower your uh, glucose level levels so that if you are on medication, you should be working with your physicians so that they can titrate you down uh, so that you won't be over-medicated, dangerously over-medicated perhaps. Okay, let's see. And I think that may have been the last true or false question that we have. We're going to be getting ready to do the presentation. We did have a couple of questions come in, so let's just see. Okay. Oh, thanks. Greetings, thanks. Said, did you say soy is bad? Well, you're paying attention, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, I think soy is to sterilize chumps. Um, I think soy is, is much worse than people realize. You got to remember it's a billion dollar food. Anything that's a billion dollar food, there's going to be all this positive publicity for it. There's even soy institutes. <laughs> no food has its own institute unless millions and millions or billions of dollars are going into promoting it. Okay. You start reading the old papers about soy before it was profitable. They'll say precocious puberty, precocious puberty. And now those they're showing deformities of the female reproductive tract, lowering male sperm counts. That's why they call guys soy boys drinking a lot of soy milk. It uh, tends to be GMO processed with uh, Roundup, which is also a brain neurotoxin, excitotoxin, also processed with hexane, another brain neurotoxin. Who the heck knows how well that GMO concept works? Um, I would avoid this stuff. Okay. And then people say, well, the Asians ate it and look, there's a billion of them and you know, it's not hurting their fertility too much. And they would eat small amounts locally grown. Uh, most of the stuff in the United States is GMO sprayed with all this, you know, Roundup glyphosate and all this stuff. Plus, even if without that, if you look at the amount of estrogenic chemicals in it, they're like thousands of times more than other foods. I don't want that. I'm a former wrestler. Okay. I'm a macho man. All right. I don't want to eat anything that's highly estrogenic. It's also very high in fat. You know, it's much fatter than the other beans. I like lentils, about 3% fat. Black beans, about 4% fat. You know, garbanzos is about as fat as I would go. It's about 13% fat. Soy is much, much, much more fat than that. There's other weird things about it. It has heme iron, like an animal. I often think of soy as like half animal and half plant. And by that, I mean it has heme iron. You know, what other plant has that? And in addition, I say to myself, you know, if you take a look, Let's say you take a look at a woman, you know, trying to show off her body in a bikini. She's got breasts. She's got a Virginia down below. Okay. I understand why she's got a lot of estrogen. Why does a soy have thousands of times more estrogen than other plant? I looked at a soy plant. It looked like a plant. I didn't see any breasts. I didn't see any Virginia down below. And so what I'm trying to say is 
The reason it's got high estrogen is because it's a pesticide genius, okay? It's to make you infertile. It's also goitrogenic, the lower um, thyroid function. Some plants want to be eaten, you know? The, the bear eats some berries and walks a couple miles down the road, takes a poop, and now you grow a new berry plant there, okay? Whatever it might be. Versus soy might say, hey, stop eating me, jerk. Here, I'm going to give you some estrogen, make you infertile. I'm going to mess up your thyroid. Stop eating me. I think it's a pesticide, okay? I, I wouldn't eat that crap. And why do you think it's why do you think it's subsidized to help lower the number of people, okay? The, you know, the ones that run the world, they think there's too many people, okay? Put a little uh, soy in there, it'll make some of them infertile. What do they put on the GMO corn? Atrazine, more of this estrogenic stuff. What's a birth control pill? EE2, ethinylestradiol, what for? To make you infertile. Estrogen levels are high, you stop ovulating, okay? Trust me, you go back and read the old papers, you'll want no part of it. And I, I realize it gets promoted by a lot of people. And I would say that, number one, a lot of people haven't read any of the papers. Number two, uh, a lot of people are weak and they just go with the flow. Well, so-and-so said it's good, so I'll just say it's good. Read the actual papers. You won't want anything to do with it, okay? Because because I know it's popular. I got kicked out of a Facebook group for criticizing soy, okay? <laughs> so, like I said, I think it's for chumps. I think it's to help uh cause infertility and i i think it's a mistake to touch the stuff i would never eat it yeah it kind of reminds me of how um people like with the mediterranean diet how they would promote oil as something healthy because compared to butter it is healthier but it's not healthy at all and so when they did studies that people who instead of consuming butter consumed oil instead they were a little bit healthier. That didn't make them completely healthy, but they were healthier. So it seems that maybe people who consume soy are more likely to be on vegan diets. And perhaps they're healthier than people that don't consume soy because maybe people who don't consume soy are probably not vegans. So there's a lot, lot of research that needs to be done as far as when people are deciding making these decisions about what they want to include in their diet. And like you said, there's so many other beans. And I, I agree when I'm looking for a bean, I'm, I don't really want to have something that's very high in fat. Most, most of us are looking to maintain our weight loss or, or to achieve weight loss. So I would think that the other beans have uh, very good properties. And so that's something to consider. Absolutely. Let's see. I think we may. Oh, okay. So let's just clear this up. Thanks. Wanted some clarification. She said, even organic edamame. I thought no, it was good I, I don't, for I'm not buying that. Okay. Because I know the arguments you've heard. I've actually heard people reading a paper that said soy had no uh, secondary sex characteristic effects. That's not true. I can also tell you some of these papers that say soy is so wonderful. They are written by people who are at the top of the Soy Institute, okay, whose job I'm expecting based on the name of their institute is to promote soy, okay? When you And then also there's a famous paper, gosh, I can't, off the top of my head, I wasn't expecting to talk about soy. I can't remember the author's <laughs> name. I think it might be Mueller. And the reason I say it is I go, oh, well, there's two receptors for estrogen. There's one for secondary sex characteristics we don't like that can increase breast uh, cell, ductal proliferation, breast cancer. But then there's another one. Soy only promotes the good one, not the bad one. It's not true. If you look at the paper, it promotes both of them. It activates both of those receptors, okay? It also causes precocious puberty in kids, okay? In my opinion, it shouldn't be fed to kids. Um, 
And then there was a whole bunch of papers earlier saying, you know, well, the issues with breast cancer aren't exactly clear. I would stay away from it because think about it. Any scientist, if they're going to do food research, they have to say it's good or they can't get any money and they'll potentially get fired. You know, it's a big mistake to think things are free. It's also a big mistake to think that industry likes you or cares about you. They don't. Okay, you have to learn to protect yourself by being smart. Okay, and I, I can just tell you, I looked at soy pretty extensively and I saw nothing to recommend it. Nothing, zero. I, I The impression I got was stay away from it. And I also got the impression the further you get into the modern world, the more bogus uh, the literature has gotten. Because the more strongly, like I said, the food companies, they just buy the journal and then they buy the scientists. The scientists, you know, they got to feed their family. They're poor. So they're going to say whatever the food company wants. Because if they say what the food company wants, they get paid. They get money. They get promoted at their university. That's how they succeed financially. Okay. But, you know, for telling the truth, you get nothing. There's no, there's no reason to tell the truth to the pros. You guys have no money. You can't help me at all. I just want to show off how smart I am, but you can't help me. Okay. So there's no, I'm just telling you the truth because I feel obligated to. All right. But there's no money in it. If I went and said, oh, gee, I've suddenly learned soy is a wonderful thing. You know, I'd probably be getting, oh, invited to all these interviews, all this stuff. So that's kind of like the way to go on your path. But I kind of have a feeling I spent a lot of time being pretty lonely. I went far away from home to college and stuff. And I worked really hard ever since I was a little, you know, 18 year old kid in college. I sort of like, you know, I want it to mean something. Okay. I don't want to be, you know, another BS artist, you know, selling out. So I'll tell you the truth. So there it is. Thank you. Here's a question that I hear from some of my clients even. David wants to know, I have low blood pressure. Is it okay if I add salt to my whole food plant-based diet? I think a lot of people are concerned about low blood pressure. and how Okay, well, when you start talking about low blood pressure, you're starting to potentially get into a lot of things. You know, as long as a person feels good, what the numbers are tend to not matter that much. If you look at traditional societies that primarily eat plant-based diets, they tend to have the same blood pressures when they're, you know, when you're born about 95 over 60 as they do in their, you know, in their elderly years. They'll go up only a little bit, you know, like 100 over 65 or something. So as long as they feel good, that's good. That's normal because they don't have atherosclerosis. Um, if you start talking about American adults with low blood pressure, then you're potentially getting into a lot of other things. Do they have a disease? Do they have a metabolic problem? But these things are relatively rare. And there's also different philosophies on sodium. Okay, one of the philosophies I see, like I'll mention Dr. McDougall. He's one of the great nutrition doctors. And he'll say, I let my patients put a little salt on their food, just you know, sprinkle it on the outside surface of their food. There's where it has the highest level of palatability. And that gets them to eat it. Because if they don't do that, then they won't eat the plant food. So he says it's, it's a worthwhile trade-off, a minor sin, all right? And that's okay. But I'm also telling you, that's not where I'm coming from. I'm coming from what's the best you could do. That's what I want. What's the best you could do? I'm not interested in mediocrity. I know I'm not interested in you all. You know, like I said, well, you're doing so much better than your fat cousin. I'm just going to tell you what I think is the best thing to do. So what I'm saying is, if you truly had a problem with low blood pressure that was actually causing you, you know, dizziness, confusion, go see your doctor and work that out what's causing that, okay? You know, you could have, there's, there's different types of syndromes of postural hypotension and all that. There's autonomic nervous system problems. Those are relatively uncommon, but you should go see a neurologist or something who's good at managing all that. So basically, 
you can put a little bit of salt on there. That's your choice, you know, and, and it depends on your own personal health. You can check with your blood pressure and you say you have low blood pressure. Well, what do you mean by that? You know, I don't know if that means you have an autonomic nervous system disease. I don't know if you have, you know, uh, another problem with your brain or something, or if you, you, there's different things you could have to cause that. But again, that's uncommon. The garden variety default setting with Americans is, let's say after, you know, 50, overweight, pre-diabetic, diabetic, and hypertensive. So, you know, I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Yeah, that's good to, to know, good for them to check. All right, I think I want to just make sure if we had any other questions come in before we begin with the presentation. So yeah, I think that we answered the questions that we have for now. If you do have a question for Dr. Rogers, please feel free to type them in the comments and we will bring them up during the broadcast. And Dr. Rogers has a really wonderful presentation about hypertension and he's going to be starting that now. Are you ready, Dr. Rogers? Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm going to add that to our screen. Okay, here we go. Okay, so this is you. This is you are here at the beginning of this process for the rest of your life. And basically, what it comes down to is if you go low fat, low sodium vegan, and you avoid a lot of these environmental toxins, like you got to filter your water at least with a carbon water filter to get all those estrogenics out that, that, that cause hypertension, you got a good chance to the rest of your life not end up on pills not need any surgeries. For example, I'm 60. I don't take any pills. I never had surgery. I don't intend to ever have surgery. Americans think that's just normal. You know, well, everybody in my family had open heart surgery, so I guess I'll probably have the same thing. Well, no, that, and then they say it's genetic. You know, I've had all these fat, sick patients. They're like, it's just genetic. Everybody in my family had to go for open heart surgery. It's genetic. Go, no, you stupid idiot. I don't say that. But what I'm thinking is you all eat the same food. You know, you never want to say it's genetic because if you say it's genetic, what you're basically saying is the situation's hopeless. There's nothing I could do. Okay. And the way the medical books are is they tend to often say cause unknown or, and, or genetic, you know, it's, it's genetic and unknown. And you know, the old joke, what does idiopathic mean? You know, it means the doctor's an idiot and the patient's pathetic. Okay. So what I'm trying to say is if you default to it's genetic, what you're saying is there's nothing I could do. I'm screwed. So you never want to do that. That's the last choice. Okay. So anyways, what the typical American does, they keep eating meat, oil, processed food. They end up on a whole bunch of pills, drug, drug, drug. And then they start, the pills start to fail worse and worse. And then they go for surgeries, chop, 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 bye-bye money, dead prematurely. Okay. If you follow the low-fat, low-sodium, whole food, vegan diet, organic only, no oils, no alcohol, no caffeine, you got a good chance, you know, keep the Johnson working for a long time and die on average around 90 years based on the Seventh-day Adventist vegans. Okay. Um, they had the, that's the longest proven longevity well-documented was Seventh-day Adventist vegans living to the females about 89.6 years of age and the men about 86 years of age. So that's like the best we know of. But a lot of those persons were not health vegans. They were sort of, you know, eating a little more uh, fat foods than one would think. So it's thought that you could probably even get the average age of a population higher than that potentially. Okay. Now let's see here. All right, so here is the uh, fountain of youth. And, you know, we don't have any definite fountain of youth where you can just swim through the water and come out younger on the other side. But the best that I know of is this low-fat vegan stuff. You know, I've been a doctor for over 30 years, board certified in three different fields, and I study this nutrition, toxicology pretty carefully. And the best thing I'm aware of, like the most powerful thing in all of medicine, was all this low-fat vegan stuff and avoiding toxins, okay? 
life. It was sort of like um, I had a Copernican moment when I'm like, when I got fat myself in my mid thirties, my parents were sick. I'm like, how come conventional medicine can't help us? And I'm like, holy crap, it's in the nutrition literature, the answers. And then later on, I started learning the toxicology literature. Okay, so tons and tons of Americans are hypertensive, super common. Um, you know, it goes with being obese. It goes with insulin resistance. It goes with sleep deprivation, stress and caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, all this stuff. All right. So here's a biography of Walter Kempner. He's a real famous doc out of, uh, uh, North Carolina and Durham was the sort of the, the place that everybody in the world with severe hypertension would go before there were any medicines. And he would put them on a low, uh, sodium, low fat diet of rice, especially white rice. And he very routinely got people's blood pressures down from even in the 200s down to a reasonable amount, like let's say systolic to 130 and whatnot. Uh, white rice only has 1% fat. So the lower the fat, um, the skinnier the persons tend to get. And when people get skinnier, their blood pressure goes down, partly because you don't have hyperlipidemia sticking your red cells together, but also because you got a smaller body. You don't need to pump to such a big body. You don't need as much pressure. So that's Walter Kempner in the rice diet. This guy is Nathan Bryan. He's sort of like the best known world expert of nitric oxide, which is a powerful vasodilator made by your endothelial cells. Uh, so you'll hear his name come up. He's friends with um, Caldwell Esselstyn. And after working with him, Esselstyn started recommending that people eat greens more often during the day. So somebody who's really high risk for coronary artery disease and severe refractory hypertension, he'll actually have them eating greens more uh, throughout the day, multiple servings throughout the day, as many as six servings a day. With the point of it being that that's going to produce nitric oxide from the greens. They have, I'll show you a slide that explains it in a moment here. He, uh, Esselstyn, he had lots of patients that they all stabilized their coronary artery disease or even partially reversed it by going low fat uh, vegan. All right. So, and with no oil, not one drop, none of this olive oil stuff. I think that's all nonsense for chumps. My advice is like Esselstyn, no oil, not one drop. And I also, I'm a big believer. Like if you want to be successful, you think biblically, biblically, thou shalt not, uh, have oil. That's it. That works. Okay. And people say, well, why are you so strict? You're extreme. You're extreme. I'm like, look, you want to be healthy or not? I could give a rat's tail. It's your life. Do what you want. But all day long, I see stroked out people. Okay. And they're screwed and there's nothing can fix them. Okay. Humpty Dumpty fell off a wall. All the King's horses and all the King's men could not put them back together again. You want to prevent these irreversible problems. And this is a way you could do it. And if you don't want to do it, fine. That's your life. Okay. Here's a high blood pressure solution. This one is by Richard Moore, MD, PhD. It's one of the greatest medical books I ever read. He spent his whole life working on hypertension. And the conclusion he came to after all these years was that the big problem with the American population is they're eating way too much sodium and they're not eating enough potassium. And sodium is a vasoconstrictor. Potassium is a vasodilator. Um, we're naturally designed to eat all that sodium. So anyways, it's a, it's a magnificent book. This is one of my books. If you're interested in the way I think, that's just an example of a book I've written. I go into a lot of detail. Okay. Um, this right here is hypertension. So baby's born, let's say 90 over 60 in that ballpark. Ideal blood pressure in an adult probably shouldn't be much uh, above this. People tend to call this being the upper threshold, about 120 over 80. And here's sort of a milder to more severe hypertension. And then where you start treating it depends. Some docs will say 150 to 160. Other ones will say less than that, 140 or other numbers. Okay, real severe hypertension, of course, when it's over 200. Okay, um, I just show you as we're going to talk a little bit about epidemiology because I get a lot of questions from people. Well, all these doctors are contradicting themselves. All these other experts are contradicting themselves. I can't figure out what's the truth. And what I'm going to tell you is look at epidemiology. With epidemiology, it becomes pretty simple. 
Okay, there's no contradiction in epidemiology. This is Dan Butner. He's working for National Geographic. They funded him. They looked up where do you have the most people that made it to their 90s or 100s that are still physically fit and mentally with it. And these are called the blue zones. And what then they then asked themselves, what do all these zones have in common? And they all ate 95% or more plant-based. You know, in more recent lectures, he says 90% uh, plant-based. But what I'm also going to say is, uh, whenever a health expert becomes famous, they're always under a lot of pressure to start recommending high fat, some animal products and all this other nonsense. And I would go with what he said originally, because th that's where the pressure is. You know, the big food companies, the processed food companies, they got money and they put pressure on people. Um, anyways, Loma Linda is the only in California. Those are the seventh day Adventists. They're the only ones that are real citified and sort of modern by our standards. And what I'm saying is most of them are kind of backwards and, and what we would call the relatively backwards they like in okinawa i actually knew an okinawan guy and he just told me look most of them didn't have a car they would walk a lot most of them were farmers trying to grow some food you know the very tight-knit families tight-knit communities are real religious and uh they used to eat lots of sweet potatoes sweet potatoes only have one percent fat they've now put a whole bunch of fast food places in okinawa and they're fat and sick like everybody else Okinawa is kind of like what Hawaii is to America. That's kind of like what Okinawa is to Japan. Oh, by the way, why were the Okinawans healthier than the rest of the mainland Japanese? And I think the main reason is because they ate much less sodium. The mainland Japanese were eating tons of sodium, like 12 or 14 grams a day. And I think that's why they were they had a lot of problems with hypertension, despite the fact they ate a low-fat diet, eating lots of white rice, 1% fat. i got to figure this out. Here, there we go. Oh, it takes a sec for me to figure out how I, okay, here we go. Oh, so I'm just showing you this epidemiology because this will help you. What I'm trying to do is lock it into your brain that this is the way to go. And you can double check all this stuff. You'll see for yourself. Because if you, if you don't have certainty of your mind on what you should do, you'll tend to just not change. And then if you don't change, you're eating high fat and processed food. You'll get fat and sick and hypertensive like everybody else. Okay, here's the Yanomamo. They're in the Amazon jungle between Venezuela and Brazil. And they don't add salt to their food, eat mostly a plant-based diet. It's been estimated they're eating in the ballpark around 200 milligrams of sodium per day. And they don't have any problems with hypertension. So that's the Yanomamo. Okay, now here is the situation in Norway. Uh, we'll first talk about during World War II, they had rationing. Um, and they didn't have much access to meat or oils and sweets also. <clears throat> and they're... Uh, their blood pressures were much improved. Their cardiac mortality was much diminished. Then after World War II was over and the food supply started becoming more readily available, lots of meat, animal foods, uh, they start getting uh, fat and sick again. In Finland, they had very, very high mortality from coronary artery disease. And then this doctor, Pekka Puska, was sort of the leader of what was called the Karelia product, uh, project. It's like a province in Finland. And they got, they especially worked with the wives because in, in those days, most of the men were out working like, lumberjack stuff like that and the women were at home cooking for them and they taught them to you know avoid meat and dairy lower their intake stop smoking lower their sodium they even switched some of the sodium to instead of sodium chloride to potassium chloride they had an 84 percent drop in cardiovascular mortality that's incredible i mean the highest you could have is 100 that's incredible okay that's how powerful it is that that's a very incredible number by the way okay so here is um sort of a more close by situation. So here's a Mexican-American border. There was a, a Mexican-American war in 1848 
and the Pimas got absorbed in Arizona. They were a population together with the Tarahumara in northern Mexico before that. Okay, and uh, Tarahumara is still by Sierra Madre Mountains, Copper Canyon. It's called Tarahumara, means like fleet runner. So anyways, the Pima now absorbed in Arizona eat the uh, standard American diet, the SAD diet. This, by the way, is what the Pima used to look like, an old photo of them. They're all skinny and real healthy and energetic looking. They look like a college wrestling team, okay? Nowadays, you see the Pima, they are like one of the fattest and sickest populations you'll ever see in your life. Okay, the Tarahumata have kept their old ways. They eat lots of corn and beans, and that's so that's locally grown corn, okay? And they eat beans, local greens, and squash, and they're really... Uh, healthy and they they're famous for running and they have some holiday once a year where they run like 100 miles in two days all the men so it's like every guy in town it's not like just the one fast guy you know it's not speedy gonzalez it's all the guys okay and so i laughed because nathan Bridikin was so impressed by them he patterned himself after them there's another guy named bill o'connor an american researcher went over there checked all their cholesterol in their labs they're for real the famous runner lady ruth heidrich went over there too and they're for real okay so i just tell you that because the Pima, the Pima are like typical American or worse. <laughs> they got these are they got all the scars of, of American Western aging, open heart surgery, coronary bypass graft, cabbage, gallbladder surgery here, appendectomy, sigmoid resection, diverticulitis, perforated recurrent diverticulitis, um, baloney amputation for diabetes. They're a mess. Okay, they're a bunch of train wrecks. All right, now a little bit about different patterns of atherosclerosis. Intracranial atherosclerosis, sometimes called Asian atherosclerosis, and this is what you would see in the Japanese in the 1960s and whatnot, eating tons of sodium, and also they were smoking a lot of cigarettes, so the hypertension would cause intracranial atherosclerosis, versus a typical Westerner gets more of a high-fat diet type of atherosclerosis. So they especially get it in the coronary arteries, very high incidence of myocardial infarction, whereas the Japanese had a high incidence of strokes from their hypertension. Um, and then they'd also get the, the westernized high-fat diets, get a lot of uh, internal carotid artery origin atherosclerosis. And so here's the chart. And this basically is what it comes down to. If you eat the American type of diet with a lot of meat and a moderate amount of oils, you end up with a lot of atherosclerosis. You know, it's been said, if you take, this is William Roberts, the like world famous cardiac pathologist on atherosclerosis researcher. He says, if you take a herbivore animal, and humans are a herbivore animal, and you feed them a high fat diet, they all get atherosclerosis. That's why I personally think this cardiac CT stuff is kind of a stupid joke. You don't need a cardiac CT, okay? You've got it, you've got it, forget it. Because I know they'll pay, I know why it can be good for a patient. Because patients, I sit there sometimes and I'll talk to them about atherosclerosis. And they just look at me like, blah, blah, blah. Like, remember when you see Charlie Brown in the Peanuts cartoon and he's sitting there in school and the teacher's going, wah, wah, wah. And they look at me like this, this like empty look and stare. Like I'm just talking nonsense. They don't understand what I'm talking about. And then, you know, I've had some of them, they get a cardiac CT and they go, look at this. There's calcium in my coronary arteries. I'm like, oh, no shit. Of course there is, you know. But that, that finally like got them to say, oh, this is for real. This is not just nonsense. It's for real. And so what, what I'm trying to say is everybody who eats the American way is going to have coronary artery calcification. They're all going to have coronary artery disease. It's expected. Okay. Tons of guys also are developing this atherosclerosis. The coronary arteries, you know, they're, they're around four millimeters, three millimeters in diameter, approximately the epicardial coronary arteries. You got your left main, left anterior descending, your circumflex. What I'm trying to say is the artery going to the Johnson, the big one feeding the Johnson's, the pudendal artery, which means the artery of shame, like in Latin. And the reason I mentioned that is a smaller diameter artery is more prone to getting atherosclerosis around the wall, mural atherosclerosis. 
So lots of guys become impotent before they start developing cardiac problems. So what I'm saying is don't wait to develop cardiac uh, problems. You might lose your Johnson a long time before that. Okay, so you don't want that. Uh, tons of guys are on Viagra in their 30s and 40s. You know, they say they say the percentage of American men impotent in their, in their 30s is in the 30th percentiles and in their 40s in the 40th percentiles, 50s, 50s percentiles, 60s, 60s. And so what I'm saying is it happens and it's probably a little more than that. But anyways, um, let's see. Now we'll go into the East Asian pattern. Like let's say the Japanese and, and other populations, they ate tons of rice. So they're eating a low fat diet, very low in saturated fat, which was protective. But many of them were eating very high sodium, as we sort of mentioned a moment ago, and smoking a lot. And so because of that, they get hypertension. They're compensating pretty well by eating a lot of vegetables. Uh, but they still had a lot of strokes, a lot of hypertension and disease related to that. And then there's a case of the people from India. I have a lot of Indian friends, a lot of Indian doctors. When I first met them, I thought they were all healthy. They tend to be skinny, kind of energetic. And uh, But then I found out lots and lots of diabetes, coronary artery disease. And I'm like, well, how could that be? You're a bunch of vegetarians and you're skinny. How could that be? And it turned out they're eating lots of fried food. Lots of, they eat some saturated fat in the form of like their ghee butter, but they're eating lots of fried food. It's very common amongst them. And then you start getting into what I would call the Tetsumori, Tetsumori Yamashima literature about lipid peroxidation and the toxic aldehydes, hydroxynonanol. Um, and so that will uh, cause damage, according to his research, to the pancreatic beta cells. So that's, you know, just like a type 1 diabetic can be skinny. That can lead to a so-called type 1.5 diabetes due to loss of pancreatic beta cells and predisposed to somebody being diabetic, even though they're not that fat. Okay, so that's, I think, their big problem. Okay, now look at low-fat, low-sodium, whole food, vegan diet, okay, with no oil. They don't get hardly any diabetes, hypertension, MI, stroke, impotence, very low cancer. That's what you want. You want to win the game of health? That's the best you could do. Like I said, this is like the most powerful thing I've ever learned in medicine. I've been familiar. I was trained in all the high-tech, imaging-guided surgery at Harvard, you know, endovascular brain surgery, you name it. I've had exposure to like the highest tech stuff. And I can tell you, there's nothing more powerful than this. And the simple reason is this is how we're designed. We're made to eat this way, species-specific diet. You go down this path, you got your best chance. It's the most important thing. Oh, I kind of joke that there's a lot of um, like dietitians and a lot of doctors who think they know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about. When people don't know what they're talking about, and it comes to nutrition, the default settings just go, well, I've heard the Mediterranean diet is good. <laughs> I don't even know what it means, okay? When Ansel Keys was working out in the 1950s, it was a primarily, you know, largely almost vegan diet, okay? Now it's become chicken and cheese and fish and olive oil and nuts and alcohol <laughs> and all these seeds. It's, it's a relatively high-fat diet. And what I'm trying to say is it's like sirens, you know, these poor sick old guys they come in and they get told all this nonsense and they plug up their arteries crash and burn die okay <laughs> the so uh be careful what you listen to double check it on your own and you'll see low fat's the way to go and then another thing is why is it that there's so much push towards eating high fat plant diet and what i'm going to tell you is you do see that on the internet there is some people that are pushing for eat plants but it's okay to eat all this fat stuff and what i'm trying to say is i think that's all bogus i think that's part of Let's say you're a big rich person and you could really just buy a bunch of land. Well, if we can get all the pros, all the low-life peasants, serfs to eat plant foods, we can free up lots of land and we can own it and, you know, have our own uh, swimming pool on there, keep our harem in there or something. Okay, what I'm trying to say is they want to keep the pros fat and sick 
because then they make money off you. You're like a cow that they milk them every day. You got to buy their pills and then they, you got to go for their surgeries. You just make yourself into a chump. Nobody makes money off a low-fat vegan. Okay, I don't take any pills. I don't need anything from anybody. That's what you want to be, independent and free and healthy, okay? Uh, when you eat all this high-fat stuff, I don't care if it comes from a plant or an animal, it's still going to start plugging up your arteries and make you sick, and you're going to run into all these problems. And the system, they want to sell drugs. If you sell drugs, they get money off you every day. Nobody wants to cure a patient. If you cure a patient, you lose a customer, okay? Okay, I'm going to... Uh, tell you a little story um, that I wrote myself a parable. Okay, here it is. Once upon a time, there was a zookeeper for the herbivore monkeys, and he had to go on vacation. A medical doctor agreed to moonlight at the zoo. He figured his experience with talking primates would serve him well. So unbeknownst to the doctor, the new commissary intern had been feeding the monkeys the same diet as the jaguars eat. It's called the Jagoff diet. The herbivore monkeys got sick and they were too tired to climb the plastic trees in their cage. Paradoxically, the female monkeys seemed happier because the male monkeys were no longer trying to mount them. The uh, MD gave the monkeys pill after pill, which slowed things down a bit, but the monkeys kept getting sicker. It took two pills to control the monkeys' high cholesterol and three pills to control the monkeys' hypertension. The MD also ordered an endocrine consult for the monkey's worsening diabetes. Perhaps a continuous glucose monitor with an insulin pump might be helpful. Perhaps with artificial intelligence, auto-programmable, and insulin dosing, that might help. The MD also wisely consulted the cardiac surgeon to evaluate the monkeys for open-heart surgery, for possible coronary artery bypass graft, cabbage. And the surgeon went through the standard consent for cabbage, including, you know, with the monkeys, graft occlusion, myocardial infarction, heart attack, chronic arrhythmia, permanent pacemaker, cognitive impairment, kidney failure, stroke, death, painful death. The monkey was scheduled for the operating room the next day. That morning, the zookeeper came back from vacation. The operation was postponed. The zookeeper put all the monkeys back on a plant-based diet, and they came off all their pills and made a full recovery. However, the male monkeys started again trying to mount the female monkeys. One of the female monkeys filed a complaint that the zookeeper was misogynist. The zookeeper got fired. Then all the monkeys died. What was the zookeeper's name? Walter Kemner. It's a bit of a joke, but <laughs> he got in trouble for fooling around one of his patients is what the story goes. And they sort of closed his clinic. But be that as it may, I think you get the point. Why, you know, why get your sternum sliced with a buzzsaw when all you got to do is eat your salad, Okay. <laughs> I think I'll take the salad instead of the buzzsaw. Okay, anyways, here's your red blood cells. They're about seven microns in diameter. Here's your capillaries, about five microns. So the RBC has to fold back on itself to pass through. Therefore, it needs flexibility. If it's too stiff, it can't get through there as well. Okay, when you eat the high-fat meals, that's a bridging molecule. LDL cholesterol, for example, sticks RBCs together. And then you're like trying to push a submarine sandwich through the capillaries because it's all stuck together. Pressure has to go up. Okay, this was the original data, like in the old uh, Ansel Key days, 1950s. Peter Quo, cardiologist in Pennsylvania, showed that eating saturated fat, he checked the blood lipids every 30 minutes. And when the patients were at peak lipemia, about four to seven hours, they started getting cardiac chest pain. And I think that's kind of funny. You couldn't do the study nowadays. They had no ability to stent the coronaries back in those days. If the patients occluded the coronary, they'd be dead. So anyways, 
Then in the 1960s, the people said, okay, Ansel Keys is right, that fat's bad, but we're going to feed our patients PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids, all these omega-6 cooking oils. And what they found is that caused even more prolonged blood flow. It's even worse. His uh, workers, and this was, it was Peter Quill mostly in the 1950s, and the 1960s was mostly Meyer Friedman and Ray Rosenman. They found that their, their, their lab workers were pissed off. Hey, these patients, you know, we want to go home. It was like late in the evening because because they stayed, you know, blood sludge so long. Um, so the the cooking oils are not going to save you. They're a very unnatural thing. Okay, here we go. Here's what I want to show. You. This was the work of uh, Roy Swank, the uh, neurologist from Canada. He later went to Oregon, showing that when you eat a high fat meal, all your red blood cells are clumping together, predisposing to forming clots. At Dr. McDougall's uh, uh, site they've got a video of how these things all clump together it's about 50 seconds long with no language um oh crap i keep going too fast all right here is the work of esselstyn he showed that when you eat the plant foods the back of the tongue has a bacteria that will convert the nitrates from the plant into nitrite i actually need to correct this slide it's nitrite that should be an i there so it goes from no3 to no2 then when it gets in the stomach the stomach acid then that causes nitric oxide to be formed, which then goes into your blood. It has a systemic vasodilatory effect. It can travel on the hemoglobin as well to get to a farther distance than one would expect from its typical half-life. If you brush your teeth with F- minus toothpaste, that will kill the bacteria on the back of your tongue, and it will impair the ability to produce the nitrites here, the NO2s. So you don't want to be doing that. You don't want to be using mouthwash with F- minus either. Um, and then I don't even brush my teeth anymore. I haven't brushed my teeth. I'll brush them like once every two weeks or something, but I always floss and I don't eat any sweets. I don't eat anything acidic. Uh, I don't have any problems with my teeth. I haven't been to a dentist in about 30 years. That's the way I'd like to keep it. I had some cavities when I was young. I did not like it. I did not like the slow drill. I didn't like any of that stuff. Okay. So anyways, I'm just telling you also these PPI medicines, proton pump inhibitors can lower your stomach acid and lower your conversion of the NO2 to NO. That's good to know because as you get older, your endothelial cells make less nitric oxide and you need to get it from your diet. And you also get it from sunshine to maintain good arterial vasodilation. And this is the reason why Esselstyn's nowadays telling his patients to eat greens six times a day if they're really high risk for coronary artery disease. So it's just good to know that's an option you could do if you're having a lot of problems. And so the usual story is, well, you do all that stuff. You live happily ever after. The Johnson keeps working into old age. And uh, isn't that nice? And I would say that's sort of like the old school version. And there is truth in it. But. In my opinion, nowadays, you need to even know more than that because there's there's other things working against you. We briefly mentioned some of these estrogenic chemicals in the food supply. Typically in the food supply, soy is cheap protein and high fructose corn syrup is cheap, cheap sugar. Okay, There's the estrogenic intrinsic nature of the soy itself. There's the estrogenic uh, atrazine sprayed on the corn. And these estrogenic chemicals, estrogen is a fat storage hormone. It says gain weight. It's for a woman. Her estrogens go up when she's pregnant and they're sort of telling her, gain weight, the baby might need that for energy. So you're making yourself more likely to be fat when you're doing that. If you're eating a lot of the omega-6 cooking oils, like Tetsumori Yamashima's data was that it's damaging the arcuate nucleus in the hypothalamus, and um, that can predispose to uh, decreased ability to control one's appetite. So you get fatter. I would call those things obesogen. And I think MSG is also indirectly, potentially an obesogen. Makes the food taste better. Putting a lot of salt on your food makes it taste better. People tend to overeat with that uh, pattern. Okay, so anyways... Red blood cells have a zeta potential negative charge on their outer surface, gets them to repel each other. That's what you want. A bridging molecule like we were talking about. These are your two red blood cells. And then you put a bridging molecule in there, LDL cholesterol, it sticks them together. And 
It makes your blood thicker and that can cause clotting. Okay, so predispose you. Here's what we were talking about, the Winkessel effect. The heart contracts, pushes blood into the ascending thoracic aorta, stretches outward, stores that energy as kinetic energy and its elastic fibers. Then that comes inward during cardiac relaxation, diastole, and that generates diastolic flow. It also generates the coronary artery flow. Um, so that's why it's important for the heart as well. Okay, here's your blood pressure. The systolic is a number on top, cardiac contractions. Diastolic is a number below. This pressure of 200 over 100 has a pulse pressure of 100 because you subtract the 100 from the 200. That's a wide pulse pressure. So that's going to be hitting away at the little arteries in your brain like a water pick. You don't want that. Here's a more normal pressure, 110 over 70. That's about my blood pressure is like about that. And that's a normal pulse pressure, about 40. Okay, your arteries expect that. Okay, we talked about the size of the RBCs relative to the capillaries. Normal blood flow is sort of laminar. The red blood cells are in the center. It's kind of like your hand. Red blood cells in the center going faster than the white blood cells right there. And then the plasma on the outer surface running along. So red blood cells in the center, WBCs right here, plasma on the edges. And that's normal laminar flow. That's what you normally have. And that's what your, your arteries expect. Okay, now here's where you start getting atherosclerosis at the bifurcations. I'm just drawing here what goes up to the brain. So this is the common carotid artery in your neck, and it hits a bifurcation point. There's an external carotid goes up to your face, internal carotid goes to your brain. And when it hits this spot too hard, because your pressure is too high, real high systolic pressure, for example, it bounces off the median divider, and that generates a lot of turbulent flow, and you get some retrograde eddy currents. When there's an excessive amount of turbulent flow and an excessive amount of retrograde eddy currents, it confuses your endothelium. It senses that as a potential injury. It starts to shed its antithrombotic glycocalyx and expose prothrombotic molecules, you know, like uh, blood cell binding proteins. And you'll tend to form an atherosclerotic plaque along the far wall here. I see these every day. I look at lots of CT angiograms of the neck and the brain, and this is right where it happens. And you end up with a steady state, steady state between clot formation and clot uh, dissolving and reabsorption. And you'll also get endothelial precursor cells that cover this up. So you want to get your act together the sooner the better. The older you get, the less able you are to keep this in check. And the more at risk you are for this plaque to progressively get bigger and also for little pieces of it to break up distally and embolize. That means to travel in the blood and potentially cause a stroke. I show you this as a mechanism of atherosclerosis uh, initiation. Because you've got tons of bifurcations in your coronary arteries, and you're going to form all these atherosclerotic uh, plaques. In your in your neck, it's a little bit simpler, you know, because there's just one big bifurcation. Common carotid artery bifurcates in the external and the internal carotid. Okay, can you reverse atherosclerosis? You can actually partially reverse it. The calcification that's not going away. Think of that as like an old scar. Okay, you got this uh, fibrous connective tissue. If it's highly cellular, like it is initially, that can be partially reversed. Once it's acellular, you're not going to reverse that. Um, the necrotic core of dead cells, that can be re reabsorbed. The lipid core of lipids, that can be reabsorbed, like a foamy macrophage, that can be reabsorbed. The clot formation itself, that can be reabsorbed. EPCs are endothelial precursor cells that cover up the plaque. So initially you form a clot, and then endothelial precursor cells circulating in the blood they cover it up. And that's how the plaque gets subintimal. That's an important point because you're going to hear all these other theories of how the plaque gets subintimal and they're going to confuse you. Okay. It's a blood clot. And the, the pathologists know it from just looking at it under a microscope. Pathologists don't care how atherosclerosis is treated. And that's why they're the most, and they look at it under a microscope. That's why they're the best scholars of atherosclerosis. They're objective. 
Imagine a cardiologist to say, if a cardiologist said stents don't work that well, he would get thrown out. He'd get run out of the business. Imagine a cardiac surgeon, a vascular surgeon said, surgical bypass doesn't work that well. They would run the guy out of town, okay? So what I'm trying to say is there's a lot of pressure on them for how stuff is treated versus a pathologist. He doesn't care how you treat it. He just wants to understand it. He looks under a microscope at it, okay? Um, so that's why they know the most about atherosclerosis. In addition, once you start eating a healthier diet, the endothelial cells will start to produce more nitric oxide so you can get more vasodilation. So that's why you can get a pretty quick response to changing the diet in terms of the restoration of the ability to produce nitric oxide. And that might happen in a couple of days. You'll start to see some evidence of that effect. Whereas shrinking the actual plaque itself, that will take longer, but it can happen over the course of months if you've got a lot of the reversible components. Here is the endothelial cells. They're spindle-shaped, lined in the long axis of the blood flow. And they can sense the blood flow. They can sense its direction, its velocity, and whatnot. Here is what the endothelial cells do. They produce nitric oxide. That's the most important thing that they do. Nitric oxide, it diffuses into the blood itself, and it's anti-clotting has an effect to, to prevent platelets from clotting. It's a gas. It actually goes into the arterial wall to the smooth muscle cells and gets them to dilate. So it causes vasodilation. That's the most important thing to know about what endothelial cells do. Endothelial just means the lining of the arteries. I actually even went to the Caldwell Esselstein course and uh, it was kind of fun. Uh, he was talking and talking about all this stuff and he kept saying nitric oxide this, nitric oxide that. And I like raised my hand. I'm like, well, what about this? What about that? And he's like, we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that later. And he came up to me afterwards and he goes, Pete, I know you mean well, but all this mechanism stuff, he goes, you're just going to confuse patients. He says, the patient, all they need to know is that this is how you increase nitric oxide. If they understand that, really get that, they'll follow the diet and they'll get a great outcome. He says, if they're confused, they don't follow the diet, they'll get a lousy outcome. So, uh, and I kind of laugh because that's kind of like the stereotype of a surgeon mentality. I just want good results. I really don't care about the details. Okay. <laughs> but he's got the best results of anybody in the world for coronary artery disease results. Okay. You can't argue with that. Uh, there's other things that endothelial cells do. For example, their glycocalyx has a lot of heparin sulfates, which are negatively charged, generating a zeta potential, and they bind to antithrombin-3, which is also very much useful for preventing coagulation, okay? And they do other things on top of that, but that, those are sort of like key things to know. Okay, other problems with eating a high-fat diet, especially like saturated fat. Uh, so here's your endothelial cell at baseline. They're connected tightly to each other with a tight junction. That's especially important in the brain. They've got these proteoglycans on top of them, which are called the endothelial uh, glycocalyx, because uh, it's a long point. They're partly a structural carbohydrate and they're partly a protein, but they have a big negative charge in them. It's from same reasons as the RBC as a zeta potential. There's sialic acids, there's cholesterol sulfates, and there's heparin sulfates. Okay, so anyways, big negative charge. And that repels the red blood cells and the white blood cells, which also have a zeta potential. Everything is normal and good. When you eat the high-fat meal, it has a tendency to activate these white blood cells called neutrophils. Once they're activated, they release myeloperoxidase, MPO, and it will then bind to the negatively charged glycocalyx, and it causes it to collapse down. And when it collapses down, these, uh, you know, blood cell binding proteins, which previously were hidden by the higher uh, glycocalyx, they now become exposed. And you'll have the neutrophils, for example, binding these proteins. You'll sometimes get red blood cells binding to the endothelium. That's bad. You don't want it. You know, in our normal body, under normal conditions, it tries to resist this and does what it can to fight this off. But what I'm saying is, why do this to your body? You're not helping yourself by eating large amounts of saturated fat, okay? And you're increasing your risk of forming atherosclerotic plaques, blood clots in your arteries. 
Okay, now here is the data of um, Jack Delatore and his theory of uh, dementia. <clears throat> Basically, he tied off the carotid arteries in the neck of the mice. And he found out that a middle-aged and older mouse, two months later, it would start becoming demented typically. And then he did autopsies on the mice. And he went in there, he's expecting to see a big stroke at first. No stroke, just a shrunken brain on the same side. He tied off the artery. And what's happening is those cells are chronically underperfused and they're, they're going into apoptosis. Apoptosis means programmed cell death where the cell is recycled. So you look under the microscope, you don't see anything except the less than expected number of cells, okay? And he actually has something interesting to say. He said that this is why Ronald Reagan became demented in the opinion of Jack Delatore. And he might be right because after he was, you know, his hit, he uh, had a lot of bleeding and he dropped his blood pressure and his blood pressure, he was hypotensive for a while, not getting enough blood supply to his brain. And he think he progressed and became demented after that. So he might be right. That's kind of interesting. And this also is what I meant by overtreatment of hypertension will cause chronic cerebral hypoperfusion, lack of blood supply to the brain, all these other things I call them mouse equivalents. Um, atrial fibrillation, you don't get that atrial filling, mouse equivalent. Congestive heart failure, you can't pump enough, mouse equivalent. Hypotension during cardiac surgery or post-op when they want to keep the pressure low so they don't bleed out at the anastomosis of the grafts, mouse equivalent, okay? Um, overtreated hypertension, mouse equivalent, all right. Magnesium sits right in the center of chlorophyll, so that's another reason to eat your greens. It has a bit of a vasodilator effect, and it's needed for any ATP-related reaction because it sort of holds the second and the third phosphates onto the ATP, adenosine triphosphate, because they have a negative charge. It has a positive charge. So you need magnesium. It has a vasodilator effect. It's in the center of chlorophyll. Oh, here's a picture of it. So it holds. This is ATP, the standard energy molecule of a cell, and magnesium helps hold these phosphates together so that it doesn't just jump off on its own. And it's able to do what it's supposed to do, including run your sodium, potassium, ATP pumps. Okay, so here I kind of joke. Here are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, okay, making people fat. The meat, the oils, obesogenic chemicals, and the fructose, all right? And uh, so you want to avoid these things. And this is why for these obesogens, that's what I meant by in your drinking water, tons of estrogenic chemicals making you fat. So you want at least a carbon filter. And I actually think you want to avoid all these high-fat foods. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about what I call the Spartan diet, the Spartan vegan diet. And that's one the one that I created based on sort of my background. Number one, it's Spartan. It's cheap and it's simple. All you do is boil water to cook your starches. And then also my background, I come from being a wrestler. If I hadn't gotten injured, I'd be a wrestler. I had a lot more fun when I was an athlete than I did when I was a scholar. Okay, but uh, just sort of I didn't plan my life. It just ended up being the way it is. Oh, I also show you. Oops, I meant to go back a slide to my diet nirvana pyramid. So here's my diet nirvana pyramid. Basically, paleo, keto, low carb is like hell. Hell, hell for morons. If you're stupid enough to believe that stuff, you're going to get punished real sick. And then the next step up is the sad diet, which is a typical, you know, fat, thick, poor people, miserable, awful outcomes, terrible outcomes. You ask any doctor, they see one train wreck disaster after another all day long. Um, they die prematurely, cognitively impaired prematurely. Okay, then the Mediterranean diet is what I call sort of like pseudo-intellectual ignoramuses like Harvard faculty, where they say, well, I've heard the Mediterranean diet is helpful. <laughs> it's what every person who doesn't know what they're talking about says because they think it sounds intelligent. If somebody says a Mediterranean diet is a good diet, that means that they're either an ignoramus, a liar, or they're stupid. Okay, there's nothing good about eating cheese, wine, chicken, oil, all this stuff. It's nonsense. So just so you're aware of it. You need to know that because otherwise you'd be tricked into doing it yourself and you waste years of your life making yourself sick. 
And then the ones that are a little more sophisticated, lacto ovo pesco vegetarians, and they'll do a little bit better, get about an extra 10 years, but it's still, you can still do better than that. So anyways, I kind of joke, it's like promoting a professor in an academic institution, making it all the way to organic only fruits, veggies, and starches, health nirvana. Okay, so here's your uh, plasma membrane, sodium, potassium pumps. And average cells use about a third of its energy. A neuron uses like, you know, half or two thirds of its energy even to run these pumps. And they do that to maintain this negative gradient in the cell, like a electrical gradient about negative 65, even up to negative 70 millivolts. And then they're going to use that like a battery for energy for everything they need to pump in and out of the cell. And a couple things is that the concentration of sodium outside the cell is much higher than inside the cell. It's about a 10 to 1 gradient, 140 to 14. All right. It's the opposite for potassium. And calcium is off the charts much higher um, outside the cell than it is inside cell. That's millimolar. That's nanomolar. All of that becomes relevant when you talk about a cell does work. So here's how a cell does work. It establishes the gradient with these pumps here. And then it couples things to this gradient. Like, let's say you want to pump calcium out of a cell. Well, because sodium wants to come in, if you let three sodium in, you can pump one calcium out. Um, and I kind of joke sometimes that the potassium and the sodium are like minimum wage workers that work all day, they're like the slaves. And then calcium is the aristocrat. When calcium comes into the cell and cytoplasm calcium goes up, things happen. Elevated calcium within a neuron tells it to release its neurotransmitter. So you got to control this very tightly. So you only release neurotransmitter when necessary. And you need to have a good uh, sodium gradient, electrochemical gradient. Electro, electro in terms of electrical, the charge inside the cell is negative relative to outside the cell. Chemical in terms of the gradient, the concentration of sodium outside the cell compared to inside the cell. And you're going to maintain, you want to, you have to maintain a constant number of positively charged ions because the cell has an osmolality. Let me show you the cell again here. It, if you have to maintain about the same number of positive and negative charges, other than slight differences, otherwise you're going to get water shifting from one compartment into another and you'll get osmotic swelling of a cell and it'll burst. So what that, that has a lot of, of consequences. What that means is what that means is if you distort these ratios, cells will swell, they'll burst, and they'll die, all right? But it also means that if you eat lots of sodium, you're going to void out of your kidneys. You're going to piss out your potassium from your kidneys. So you're going to worsen the situation, like a little bit of a vicious cycle. Um, and normally, you've got to eat at least a minimum of about five times more potassium than sodium to have a decent blood pressure. And Americans tend to eat 10 to 1 on their sodium. So Predisposing them to hypertension. Oh, another thing too is if you overtreat the hypertension, a lot of these old people they're falling because their pressure's too low. So whenever I hear pressure's low, the first thing I think of is overtreated hypertension. Okay, let's say you have an old, poor old person. They're barely got enough money on their pension. It's hard for them to get to the store. They miss a couple meals in a row. They still keep taking their blood pressure pills. They could drop their pressure, you know, and become confused because that. Because what's the purpose of your pressure? To get blood in your brain and fall and you know hit their head or fracture their hip or something. It also over time can make them demented. Okay, next thing is hypertension in blacks. Blacks got way more hypertension, and also a significant percentage has sickle cell trait, predisposing them to kidney failure. You walk into any dialysis unit in the United States, practically, and you see lots and lots of uh, blacks with uh, on kidney failure dialysis. Okay, and then what I was taught in med school and residency fellowship. Oh, it's sad, you know. Maybe it's genetic, salt sensitivity, sodium sensitivity. 
there's nothing you could do. Isn't it sad? Okay. And then, you know, here I see a paper like this. Take a look at this paper. This is from 1929 in the Lancet Journal. Author's name is Donison. Okay. This is in Kenya. 1,800 consecutive admissions. Not a single case of raised blood pressure. When they're eating plant-based diet, they didn't have any hypertension. So, and it's so common in the United States. That's why I always laugh. You know, people tell me, oh, well, you know, medicine in the United States is so sophisticated. It's not backwards and primitive like these other countries. <laughs> yeah, right. It's based on profit, okay? The system could care less about the individual patient. Like I said, there's no incentive to cure a patient. None. Um, oh, there's just some brief mention of the Yanomami, how they don't have a problem with high blood pressure. What does it say here? No access to salt in their diet. Uh, their salt intake, um, you know, 250 milligrams a day. Uh, hypertension is non-existent in such a society, okay? Um, okay, but what, then there's a whole bunch, a little bit more, all, all the same type of message. Okay, but I think I missed a slide in there. Okay, but the point I wanted to say was, why is it that black got so much hypertension? And, and more uh, went through the studies on this too. They don't eat enough potassium, okay? There's your big mystery, okay? <laughs> And I, I love it. They always want to say, well, we want to help the minorities or it's racism or something. P.S. Okay. They need to eat more plants because that's where the potassium is. All right. So big, big mystery. Okay. All right. So what happens? Chronic hypertension, chronic diabetes, the chronic hypertension, you're going to thicken the vascular smooth muscle hypertrophy. You're going to lay down more collagen, more fibrosis. Um, the diabetes in particular, you're going to thicken the capillary basement membrane. Here's red blood cells going through a normal capillary, delivering oxygen to the neurons. Okay, and these little blue circles are the oxygen. Well, when you thicken the capillary basement membrane, you thicken the muscular wall, and I know you got pericytes around your brain capillaries more so than vascular smooth muscle cells are really about the same thing. So the point I'm making is you're less able to deliver oxygen to the neuron. And as this uh, thickening gets worse here at the capillary basement membrane, less and less oxygen gets to the brain. So this is how severe hypertension will cause brain damage because you can't adequately get enough oxygen delivered to the neurons. Um, and, and severe diabetes does the same thing as well. And most patients eventually end up having both of these conditions. All right. So that's how the severe high blood pressure makes it worse. And if you're hypotensive, you don't got enough red blood cells going through those capillaries to deliver the oxygen. You're screwed either way, unless you can get to the Goldilocks medium, happy medium. And the best way to do that is by eating healthy. You can try doing it with pills, but it's much better to fix it just with your diet. And here's where I put the skull and crossbones on the brain. I see tons of strokes in this area. I can see one patient could have hundreds of little silent strokes in this area. It's called association cortex. It's really also called the deep white matter. And it's where the myelinated axons travel. Cortex means bark, like the bark of a tree. You look at a tree stump that was cut down, you see the bark in the periphery. And that's how the cortex is. Cortex means cerebral gray matter. It traces the outline of the brain. That's where the cell bodies are, the neurons. There's more metabolic activity in that region. So they need more blood supply. They got about a four times more blood supply to these areas. And anyways, then you got these penetrating arteries that go into deep white matter, like adjacent. Here's the lateral ventricles. And um, you'll often hear this described as being the corona radiata. You'll hear the area above it, deep white matter, centrum semiovole, where the deep uh, brain nuclei are that's called basal ganglia. Anyways, what's the point? The point is if you drop pressure, you don't perfuse this area. And this is the most common spot to get silent strokes. As you accumulate more silent strokes, you get progressive cognitive impairment, progressive weakness. Um, hypertension will often shear off one of these arteries. So you get little hypertensive lacunar infarction in this area. We briefly talked about lacunar infarctions. This is where they occur most commonly in the basal ganglia region. 
up in this area, you typically get your silent strokes. And I'll, I'll show you a picture of them. I think I got an MRI slide coming next. Okay. But this is the spot where I see tons of silent strokes, tons of them. I can see, like I said, I can see 101 patients. And here's an example of it. So here's a normal looking brain. Ventricles are normal in size. All of the uh, brain parenchyma is normal. You can see there's a little mild hyperintensity in the periphery. This is called a flare sequence. It's the most common important brain MRI sequence for looking at the supratentorial brain. The old joke is it's a desert island sequence. If you were stranded on a desert island and you could only have one MRI sequence for looking at brains, you would want a flare sequence because uh, it suppresses the signal of the cerebrospinal fluid but maintains the high signals for pathology. All right, so here's like a typical looking uh, brain. This would be, I would say, like a like an average 85-year-old, all right? All these white spots are bad, all right? They're, we typically describe them as being flare hyperintensities. The typical MRI report, this would be described as uh, the patient has mild, has diffuse cerebral atrophy with associated mild ventricular megaly, and there is extensive juxtaventricular, periventricular, and subcortical flare hyperintensities, most likely due to small vessel um, atherosclerotic disease. All right. And so basically it's also a combination of the things we talked about related to hypertension and diabetes, but that's a typical report. This is what I, I see lots of people 80, 85 with a normal looking brain like this, but I more often see brains looking like this because Americans have lots of hypertension and diabetes, which are the main things that cause this. Okay. So you, you prefer your brain to be like this. All right, this is just showing, here's the arterial wall. The endothelial cells are on the inner part of it. The pericytes, the muscle cells, when you get down to the arterial capillary level in the brain, there they are. Then there's tight junctions between the endothelial cells. That's what moves the blood-brain barrier. Okay, here's my uh, food pyramid for the Spartan vegan. And first of all, is the bottom line is the things like, you know, maintain good relationship with family and friends, get along with people. Um, that also helps to lower your stress level, get your exercise, maintain some aerobic fitness and some physical strength, uh, get your sunshine for your nitric oxide. Also, it does other things for you, your vitamin D. It also helps generate a good type of sulfur uh, to maintain your, your zeta potential. That's a long story. I'm not going to go into all that right now. Uh, but uh, the big thing is the nitrates in terms of our purposes for vasodilation. Get your sleep. That's when your brain cleans itself. That's when your body heals. Also good to be religious, okay? People make fun of religion in the modern world, but they're quite mistaken. Religious people are much healthier. All the blue zones are quite religious. They have tighter-knit communities. They've got fewer divorces. They're just happier and healthier people. There's a wisdom to that. Okay, there's an entire book by a guy named uh, Koenig, Harold Koenig, all about how religious people are so much healthier than other people. Um, next thing is eat your starches. That's sort of the main source of calories. And you can just cook all of these by boiling water, all right? I like potatoes, sweet potatoes, and rice. They're all 1% fat. The lower the percentage of fat, the healthier the population. As far as beans, lentils are about 3% fat. Uh, black beans, about 4% fat. Garbanzo is about 13% fat. Uh, oatmeal is about 16% fat, which is higher than these other plant foods, but it's still pretty good. If you look at a, a typical meat, look at salmon. It's 50% protein, 50% fat. It's a terrible food. Uh, quinoa is somewhat similar to oatmeal. Fruits um, are pretty good. Uh, they're just harder to get. Fruits are more expensive. They don't store as well. Veggies are real healthy for nutrients. But they don't give you much calories. You end up needing to take B12. I like uh, methylcobalamin. I think cyano is a bad idea. 
Okay, here's the food plate, healthy food plate. Kind of just saying the same thing, but putting it onto a plate. Again, I, you know, McDougal, for example, tends to recommend like upwards of 80%, even 90% uh, the calories from starches. I like to eat probably in the ballpark of 30% uh, from fruits. And there are people, a lot of triathlons and stuff, they'll eat even more fruits. There's a real famous guy named Michael Arnstein, ultra marathoner. He moved to Hawaii so he could eat a higher and higher percentage of his calories from fruits. And what I've seen of people who eat a lot of fruits is they tend to be very healthy. Uh, but again, it's not easy to do. They're expensive and they don't store well. Most of us are limited to going to the grocery store. If you could grow them, that would be great. Um, eating a lot of greens. It's hard to get access to greens even. For me, it is. I got to go to the store to get them. Uh, but I try to eat at least one salad a day. On the weekends, I'll try to eat two salads a day. You got to filter your water, at least a carbon water filter. Otherwise, you'll have a tendency, I think, to get tons of estrogenic chemicals from that. I've known some people that had, like I've had some women tell me, every woman in their family had to get a hysterectomy before the age of 35 because of fibroids. And they're all drinking tap water. Okay, here's just one example of a food, sweet potato. Look at this ratio here of potassium to sodium. This is pretty typical in plant foods. It's got a 10 to 1 ratio, okay? And they're real low in fat, less than 1% fat. I actually think sweet potato is the best food in the whole world because it's low in protein and it's low in fat. Papua New Guinea would get 93% of their calories from sweet potatoes. They're all fit and strong. Um, here are blueberries. Again, look at this. Potassium was around 100. Sodium was, was, was barely one. Okay. You got this huge increase in uh, potassium. Okay. Um, generic cereals. This was a so-called healthy cereal. It had around sodium of 330 relative to potassium of zero. That's why I stopped eating cereals because they tended to have such high sodiums relative to the potassiums. I'm like, forget this. You're going to end up hypertensive. Plus, almost all of them had MSG in there. Lots of them had oil in them, even the organic ones. So I quit eating cereal for that reason. Okay, here is uh, a little bit about estrogenic chemicals here. I'm just going to talk, you know, your, your estrogens are um, steroid hormones. So that means they're based on cholesterol and that has four rings to it. Estrogens uniquely will have an aromatic ring, meaning three double bonds on it. And typically with a phenol group coming off, phenol is a hydroxyl group. This combination of uh, 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 a six carbon ring with three double bonds and a hydroxyl group called a phenol group. That's what activates the estrogen receptor. That's what's also antimicrobial. So it's super common as a preservative in foods. Okay, here is uh, how it binds the estrogen receptor. It'll form a hydrogen bond with the active site receptor. So anything that's got this phenol group on it will have a tendency to interact with an estrogen receptor. That's why so many chemicals are estrogenic because it didn't have a lot of competition historically, evolutionarily, if you will. And synthetically, though, lots of chemicals are made. And the reason why you can never trust a corporation is because, for example, bisphenol A is a profitable chemical for making pro, uh, plastics. So the people, a lot of people complain because it's so toxic to the human body. They go, OK, fine. You don't want bisphenol A? Fine. We'll get rid of it. Fine. And they say, oh, isn't that corporation nice? They just put a sulfur group in there and like a sulfate group. And all of a sudden... Now you've got BPS. It's still got a phenol group on the end. It's still estrogenic. It's always going to be like that. So I see a lot of people that tell me, well, why don't you tell the companies not to do that? And they're right. They make a billion dollars off these chemicals. They don't care what people want or what people say. They'll just pay off the regulatory agency so you can forget about anybody ever doing anything nice for you. It's not going to happen. All you can do is try to learn how to navigate the environment. You know, for example, my kid one time came to me and he's like in seventh grade or something. So the teacher ripped him off on a on an essay for the grade. And I think she did because I think the kid wrote a good paper. But 
I basically told him too is don't expect the world to change. It is what it is. I said, you're like a rabbit, you know, a rabbit's walking down a path in the forest. Okay. There's a hawk up in the tree. There's a snake out there. There's coyotes over there. They're never going to change. Okay. They're always going to want to eat the rabbit, kill the rabbit, rip the rabbit off. Okay. The rabbit has to learn how to be smart, have a system of burrows, pay attention to the birds. You know, and the, when they get excited, there's something going on, a predator is afoot and just learn how to navigate the environment. It is what it is. Don't go thinking other people are going to change to make the world better for you. It's not going to happen. And when you think that way, you'll be more with it and astute and do things to help yourself versus if you sit around whining that the world should be made better for you, you're going to be disappointed. All these regulatory agencies, they're bogus. Conventional medicine wants to rip you off and sell you drugs. You're on your own. Accept it. And once you've accepted it, learn what you can. You're lucky enough. All this stuff is available on the Internet for free, at least at the moment. You know, um, stuff that tells you the truth often gets banned. So learn from it when you can all these men tons of them are fat with boobs man boobs okay gynecomastia from all the estrogenic chemicals in their beer and their tap water in these processed foods lowered sperm counts men's testosterone and uh sperm counts are lower than ever and like i said i don't think it's all an accident i think that you know the reason all this estrogenic stuff is subsidized and this al and the sky and the water it's lowering fertility rates, you know, decreasing the population size. Okay, here's another thing. When you eat the, the foods that don't have any fiber, the meats and the processed food, you get the bad gut bacteria. Bad gut bacteria have more of a glucuronidase enzyme. Normally, your body excretes estrogen through the liver. It conjugates it uh, to a glucuronic acid, which is like a glucose with a carboxylic acid attached to it. And then it's passed into your bile that goes out into your colon and we defecate it out of our bodies. But if you have this enzyme, on the, which is present in higher amounts on the bad bacteria, glucuronidase, they unconjugate it, they deconjugate it. Now the estrogen is reabsorbed in the body. So this is another reason why meat eaters have higher estrogen. They also give estrogen-like chemicals for their anabolic properties to fatten up the cattle faster to get them to, to get them to market. So all of that makes a person more estrogenic and fatter. I talked about how you got to filter your water, um, and they are making this makes the fish infertile too. Because a lot of times I hear this nonsense: "Oh, you need to drink eight cups of water a day." I never heard that before. Like I was a wrestler and college wrestler back in the 1980s. And man, we would sweat off five to 10 pounds of practice. We'd drink some water afterwards. Nobody had a water bottle in the practice room. Okay. Later on, they started selling bottled water and Gatorade. And all of a sudden, everyone's supposed to drink eight cups a day. And what nonsense that is. Does a real uh, skinny woman who weighs 90 pounds need as much water as a 350 pound lineman? Anytime you hear the same thing for everybody, you know it's BS. Okay. And then what I'm laughing is because I see a lot of fat women walking around with a gallon jug of water trying to lose weight. It's like the water's probably full of estrogen from the plastic, estrogen from not being filtered, and they're making themselves fatter and sicker. It's not what you need to do. If you eat a lot of plant foods, you end up not drinking that much water because there's so much water in plant foods. Um, so I think that might be my last slide. Oh, here was just the atrazine. And this is another one. Um, and here's the paper by this guy, Tyrone Hayes, he's a black guy. Okay. And he figured out the atrazine was turning the, you know, the little junior, uh, male frogs into females. Okay. And so he published, you know, this paper and you say, well, gosh, the guy deserves a big prize, a great discovery. No, they tried to fire him and take all his funding away. And I'm trying to say is that's what happens. I have uh, friends that are PhD molecular biologists, and they told me their friend discovered, you know, that the high fructose corn syrup was pretty routinely contaminated with uh, mercury HG and he got fired. Okay. <laughs> so that's what happens when you, when you do something to help people and you get in trouble in the modern commercial corporate world. 
Uh, so anyways, here's uh, the sibling, two male siblings. Uh, well, I'm not even going to go into the details of that, but you don't want atrazine in your food. Okay. Um, here is then what I would recommend. You want to live simple. To be simple is actually an advantage in the modern world. We're designed to eat these plant foods. Eat your plant foods. Keep your life simple like Adam and Eve, but keep your indoor heating and plumbing. And you got a better chance to stay healthy. Um, and Genesis 129 is, you know, put all these plants on the earth for you. That's a whole other story to go into all that. But we got flat teeth like a herbivore. Our dog goes side to side like a herbivore to grind food. And uh, these low-fat plant foods, that keep your arteries open. There's not that much sodium on them. There's enough sodium for you naturally just from eating your plant foods to keep you healthy. Uh, so, anyways, hope that was helpful. Yes, that was very helpful. <laughs> I really enjoyed that a lot and really learned quite a bit from that presentation. I'm just checking the chat to see if we have any other uh, questions that may have come in. Let's see. If you, anybody else has a question, you can go ahead and um, type that in the chat. Let's just see. Okay. Uh, Rachel said, what are the potential risks associated with uncontrolled hypertension during pregnancy? And how can expectant mothers manage their blood pressure? Oh, yeah. I actually think it's important for a woman to try to eat as healthy as she can during her pregnancy. And I actually think she should probably start ramping up if she's planning to have a child she should try to make sure she's really trying to get her act together a couple of months in advance of having the baby. Because if she's hypersensitive during pregnancy, that can cause problems with the placenta. You can even trend into preeclampsia, eclampsia, and all that stuff, which is managed by the OB doctor. But just in general, lots of women, I see them when they're pregnant, they get really fat. Um, and the, the more fatter they get, the more predisposed they are to uh, you know, pregnancy-related diabetes. And it's also been shown that the fatter the mother gets during pregnancy, the more likely the child's going to have problems with obesity. Um, if they're eating a lot of processed food, the monosodium glutamate potentially is going to lead to increased glutamate getting through the placenta and having increased access to the baby. And that can cause problems for the baby's health. There's other chemicals in the food that gain access to the baby. You know, babies don't have a well-developed blood-brain barrier. Uh, more things than we would think can get through the placenta so what I'm saying is the same diet that optimizes the pregnant woman's health will be better for the baby, okay? And I think that's relevant because a lot of people are not aware of that, okay? My wife is a doctor. She was not aware of this when she was pregnant. This is not widely known. Uh, but I think that it's a good idea to be as optimizing the diet as possible for the pregnant mother. And so what are the main things that increase hypertension? High sodium diets and high fat diets. So... I think she should, you know, try to eat as healthy as she can, a, a plant-based diet. And I think that will uh, help to provide good nutrients for her and for the baby and make her less likely to be hypertensive or diabetic. And she's got to work with her doctor, of course, you know. Right, right. That is very true. Okay. And let's just see. I think we had another... Uh, John said, my blood pressure is normal. When I exert myself, I get a mild headache. Thoughts? Oh, uh, well, the question is, why are you getting a headache? What is your blood pressure? Are you taking any other medicines? And what are you doing? And like, I'll just give you one example. You know, I like to lift weights as a, as a hobby and I'll do squats. And I found as I was getting older, I couldn't squat to have your weights or I would start getting a little bit of a headache. And I started doing different types of body work. I started doing a lot of these isometric exercises 
And I started doing more just bodyweight exercises like push-ups, for example. And I got stronger from doing all that stuff. I went back and I squatted and I didn't get headaches anymore. And I could squat pretty heavy weights. So I don't know if it's a question of maybe my blood pressure went up more because I wasn't as strong. But as I got stronger, all this core strength and stuff, and I could handle the heavier weights. I'm not sure exactly what's causing that. I don't know if it's from, you know, getting a hypertension related to the exercising. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. I don't know if their diet's changing or they're taking any pills. It's hard to answer. There's a lot of things that can cause headaches. You know, MSG can cause headaches. A lot of things in processed food can cause headaches. Some people get headaches from a lot of the chemicals in these different processed foods. So I'm not sure what the answer is for that, but I would try to figure it out and I would try to see if it was related to your exercise. And, you know, are you lifting real heavy weights? Does that seem to be what's going on? I don't know. Okay. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you for that. Well, I really wanted to uh, encourage everybody now to click like to show your appreciation for what Dr. Rogers shared with us today. That's how we applaud when we're online. Click like. Dr. Rogers, please tell us about what you do and how we can find you on social media. Oh, all right. Yeah, well, I do have a YouTube channel, Peter Rogers, MD, and I post videos on there periodically. Um, I have written about 15 books. You know, I sort of, I really was a total workaholic when I was young and um, I started learning all this stuff. I didn't learn all this plant-based stuff until I was in my thirties when I had had gotten fat myself and my father had coronary artery disease, my mother had cancer. And I'm like, holy crap, all these answers I've been searching for, they're not in the conventional medical literature. They're in the nutrition and toxicology literature. I wish I had known about this before. So I started studying that pretty extensively. And, you know, I wanted to do something good with my career. I always wanted to try to become a great doctor. I wasn't just trying to get a job and make money. I, you know, my father was a doctor. I just assumed I'll be a doctor. I wanted to be better than my father. And um, I sort of really was sad about giving up the life of an athlete. It was so much more fun to be an athlete that I figured, well, maybe if I become this great doctor, my life will become fun again. I somehow had that vision. And then it's kind of funny, but the better you get as a doctor, you know, you become a Michael Jordan of the NBA, you win a award, you get more money, you know, your choice of the women. Okay. <laughs> in medicine, the better you get, the more likely you are to get in trouble or get fired or have a problem. Nobody wants to cure the pros, but I still figure, you know what, just as a hobby. So I don't make any money with this. I don't monetize my channel, but I figure as a hobby, I'll put all this information out there. So for the people that are curious enough, motivated enough, smart enough to find it, the information's there. I'm going to tell you the truth. And like I said, I don't have any, I have zero sponsors. Nobody sponsors me. I wish I could do full time, just write books. That's what I'd like to do. So anyways, you know, like I said, I was first in my class, I, my residency boards, I had a perfect score and I was done like, you know, an hour on a four and a half hour test. So I'm pretty good at academics. Okay. So anyways, I'll tell you the truth. I got nothing else going for it, but I kind of want to just put my time to the best use as a hobby. That's where I'm coming from. So that's basically it. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. And also you have written uh, quite a few books that uh, I'm going to put links to those as well, in case anybody's interested books about today's topic, as well as a variety of topics. Oh, yeah. I would say one thing about the books too. I've written a lot about study skills In my experience, college students are so unprepared for college. They figure, well, I got decent grades in high school. I'll be okay in college. And I'm like, no, a lot of times in order to win a game, you have to understand the game. And college is basically a memorization contest. So get good at memorization. 
Okay. And there's a lot of little nuance to it. Okay. And if, if, if you can, what I'm trying to say is all these people, they fail in college because they don't understand what they're doing. But if you just understand what you're doing, you'll do much better. And it's not that hard to figure out. You know, you're, you're paying all this money for tuition. You might as well learn how to study. And then as far as my nutrition books, I go into more detail. You know, you got more time in a book to build a theme. But, you know, the Internet's a big advantage, too. It's easier to understand when people are talking to you. It's easier to understand when you can see pictures. So they're complementary. Um, not many people read nowadays, but for the ones that do, my books are there. And I write them to a pretty high IQ level, okay? A lot of information is sort of dumbed down. And mine's not. My attitude is kind of like, you know, if you're, if you're motivated enough to read this, smart enough to read it, I'm just going to tell you how things are. So for what that's worth. Well, it is worth a lot because when I first adopted this lifestyle back in 2012, a lot of the information that I gleaned, I thought to myself, why didn't anybody tell me this? And I really thought that, that a lot of it was very interesting because I had not heard it before. And then when I encountered your YouTube channel and, and your lectures, that just opened up another window for me. And I said, wow, that's a lot more information. Why hadn't anybody else told us? And uh, I think that just because some people may not be as curious as others doesn't mean that you shouldn't be out there putting that information out. And I often hope, and you actually do have some some of your lectures that you give on your channel that they're for doctors only. When I saw those, I had to watch them. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just say something too about what had happened to me. I get into my mid thirties, I'm fat. My dad's got coronary artery disease. My mom's got cancer. And I'm like, oh, what the heck happened? You know, I'm supposed to be this great doctor, you know, first in his class and then a Harvard trained guy. And I'm like, how come I can't do anything? Maybe conventional medicine is just weak. It stinks. Okay. And then I'm like, gosh, I go into nutrition, uh, toxicology later. Like they've got real answers. Esselstyn, Ornish, and these other ones, Armstrong, Kempner, Pritikin, they've cured coronary artery disease. Okay. How come I didn't know this? I could have helped my father not need to go for heart surgery. And I was a little pissed off. I'm like, the incidence of cancer is so much lower in these countries. I was kind of pissed off. And I kind of lived almost like a monk for many years. You know, I was a total workaholic through college, med school, residency. And I missed out on a lot of fun. And I'm like, well, I wanted it to count for something. So, you know, that I'm just going to become a drug dealer. Or, don't get me wrong. I was a surgeon primarily. I was a surgeon initially at the beginning of my career before I became more of a neuroradiologist primarily. So I wanted to make my academics and training count for something. I go through all the textbooks and then medical textbooks, they stink. They're so bad. It's an embarrassment. It reminds me of something from the 1700s where they tell everybody to have a phlebotomy. will draw blood. In the modern books, what they say for almost everything, coronary artery disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, autoimmune disease, dementia. Nobody knows the cause. There's some vague theories. It's partly genetic. Just take our pills and we'll try to slow it down. And that's BS. As it turns out, when you start reading the nutrition and toxicology literature, a lot of these things are very well understood, and there's a lot you could do, and you've got a good chance to help yourself. So um, that's why I talk about them, because they should be talked about, so that there, there quite often is something. And, and a lot of the BS hides behind the idea of a standard of care. I want the standard of care. This is the standard of care. All doctors practice a standard of care, which paradoxically means treatment geared at like half demented people. Okay. What am I talking about? In your emergency room, lots of people come in the door, they're intoxicated on alcohol or other drugs, or they're just demented. Okay. So standard of care is the lowest common denominator for people like that. But a person who's with it, mentally alert and motivated, who's willing to change their diet, their behavior, their lifestyle, their sleep, et cetera, they often, they could go for what is called optimal care and get a much better result. But what I'm trying to say is 
people think that all there is is the standard of care. But there's, an, there's such a thing as optimal care, which quite often is much above the standard of care. And you have to be aware that it even exists in order to seek it out. And so for what it's worth, I try to show where optimal care is better than standard care when it's there and uh, give people a bigger chance to help themselves. Well, we all really, really appreciate it. And it, it, the knowledge, when, for me, once I've learned something, I can't unlearn it. And having the most knowledge that I can about this lifestyle is so important to me. And I think it's important for our green warriors because whenever you're in a situation, whether it's a social situation and, and there may be something in your mind that says, oh, maybe just this once, it's not, it's not a, a, an option. Not when you learn what the real uh, operations of the human body are and what they entail and, and how much you've already probably done to yourself that you really have a lot of years to make up for. So it's very helpful to have this in the back of our minds to help us stay on track. And Dr. Rogers, for those that are concerned about hypertension, whether it's for themselves or for their loved ones, What's your final take-home message for our green warriors? Well, basically, if you're already taking hypertensive pills, you need to work with your doctor to potentially titrate down your dosages. Because when you start reducing your dietary fat and your dietary sodium, there's a very good chance your blood pressure is going to come down quite a bit. In which case, your old medical dosages will be too high and it becomes dangerous. Because if you lower your pressure too much, you don't get enough blood to your brain. You can become dizzy or confused or pass out. So you have to make sure you're working with your doctor, getting your blood pressure checked frequently as you change your diet and start lowering your dietary fat amount and dietary sodium amounts. If you just go with those big starches, white rice, potatoes, sweet potatoes, they all have 1% fat. You could rapidly drop your dietary percent of calories from fat. And um, look at Kempner. He put the patient on white rice. Kempner markedly reduced sodium, but he reduced sodium so much that, that actually needs to be done in a controlled setting where the patients are monitored very closely. A regular person doesn't need to do that. Um, so what I would say is the good news, there's, there's good reason to be optimistic that you got a chance to dramatically improve your blood pressure. And you can do all these other things too. Get off the caffeine, no alcohol, no stimulants of any type whatsoever, no cigarettes. Um, and and you, we can start getting into more things. But you just do that basic stuff. Pritikin said that he usually take off 90% of their antihypertensive meds that were unnecessary. Uh, so that's just a baseline, you know, when the people would come spend just a small amount of time with him, you know. So there's good reason to be optimistic. You know, if you've been hypertensive for 20 years, you've probably lost your Winkessel effect. It's going to be harder to come off all your meds. But you can still probably make dramatic improvements. And, you know, why not go for it? That's great. I love that. We'll, we'll make a short with that. <laughs> Well, Green Warriors, tell us what you're going to remember. What is your takeaway from today? Type it in the comments so that we can see what hit home for you. And I also wanted to thank Jess Tasboy. She did the promo. She did the countdown. And she helped in so many ways to spread the word of this broadcast so that people like you could be watching and listening. Jess Tasboy, tell us who's coming up next. Tired of procrastinating and making excuses for not embracing or sticking to a whole food plant-based lifestyle? Get tips and motivation to help you break free from the cycle of delay from Esther Leverage, who at age 72 lost 130 pounds. Join us on Friday, December 22nd, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific on Be Green with Amy Live. And Green Warriors is a special thank you to you. I'm offering you five free recipes 
that will help with this lifestyle, if you just go to begreenwithamy.com slash join, I'll send them to you. Now, if you would like to join me and Dr. Rogers with my tagline that we're going to be saying together, you can type it in the comments. And I want to thank all of you for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Rogers. Would you like to join me now? Until I see you again, remember, be strong, be well, and be, be green. green. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Rogers. Thank you, Green Warriors. Thanks, everybody, for supporting this channel. Now you can listen to Be Green with Amy expert interviews wherever you go. Listen while walking, meal prepping, or traveling. Find Be Green with Amy on Apple, Google, Alexa, Amazon, or virtually anywhere you find podcasts. Be strong, be well, and be green with Be Green with Amy.